Federalist Number 25 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 25. The same subject continued. The powers necessary to the common defense further considered. From the New York Packet. Friday, December 21st, 1787. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. It may perhaps be urged that the objects enumerated in the preceding number ought to be provided for by the State governments, under the direction of the Union. But this would be, in reality, an inversion of the primary principle of our political association, as it would in practice transfer the care of the common defense from the federal head to the individual members, a project oppressive to some states, dangerous to all, and baneful to the Confederacy. The territories of Britain, Spain, and the Indian nations in our neighborhood do not border on particular states, but encircle the Union from Maine to Georgia. The danger, though in different degrees, is therefore common, and the means of guarding against it ought, in like manner, to be the objects of common councils and of a common treasury. It happens that some states, from local situation, are more directly exposed. New York is of this class. Upon the plan of separate provisions, New York would have to sustain the whole weight of the establishments requisite to her immediate safety, and to the immediate or ultimate protection of her neighbors. This would neither be equitable as it respected New York, nor safe as it respected the other states. Various inconveniences would attend such a system. The states, to whose lot it might fall to support the necessary establishments, would be as little able as willing, for a considerable time to come, to bear the burden of competent provisions. The security of all would thus be subjected to the parsimony, improvidence, or inability of a part. If the resources of such part becoming more abundant and extensive, its provisions should be proportionally enlarged. The other states would quickly take the alarm at seeing the whole military force of the Union in the hands of two or three of its members, and those probably amongst the most powerful. They would each choose to have some counterpoise, and pretenses could easily be contrived. In this situation, military establishments, nourished by mutual jealousy, would be apt to swell beyond their natural or proper size, and being at the separate disposal of the members, they would be engines for the abridgment or demolition of the national authority. Reasons have been already given to induce a supposition that the state governments will too naturally be prone to a rivalship with that of the Union, the foundation of which will be the love of power, and that in any contest between the federal head and one of its members, the people will be most apt to unite with their local government. If, in addition to this immense advantage, the ambition of the members should be stimulated by the separate and independent possession of military forces, it would afford too strong a temptation, 
and too great a facility to them to make enterprises upon, and finally to subvert, the constitutional authority of the Union. On the other hand, the liberty of the people would be less safe in this state of things than in that which left the national forces in the hands of the national government. As far as an army may be considered as a dangerous weapon of power, it had better be in those hands of which the people are most likely to be jealous than in those of which they are least likely to be jealous. For it is a truth, which the experience of ages has attested, that the people are always most in danger when the means of injuring their rights are in the possession of those of whom they entertain the least suspicion. The framers of the existing Confederation, fully aware of the danger to the Union from the separate possession of military forces by the States, have, in express terms, prohibited them from having either ships or troops, unless with the consent of Congress. The truth is, that the existence of a federal government and military establishments under state authority are not less at variance with each other than a due supply of the federal treasury and the system of quotas and requisitions. There are other lights besides those already taken notice of, in which the impropriety of restraints on the discretion of the national legislature will be equally manifest. The design of the objection, which has been mentioned, is to preclude standing armies in times of peace, though we have never been informed how far it is designed the prohibition should extend, whether to raising armies as well as to keeping them up in a season of tranquillity or not. If it be confined to the latter, it will have no precise signification, and it will be ineffectual for the purpose intended. When armies are once raised, what shall be denominated keeping them up, contrary to the sense of the Constitution? What time shall be requisite to ascertain the violation? Shall it be a week, a month, a year? Or shall we say that they may be continued as long as the danger which occasioned their being raised continues? This would be to admit that they might be kept up in time of peace, against threatening or impending danger, which would be at once to deviate from the literal meaning of the prohibition, and to introduce an excessive latitude of construction. Who shall judge of the continuance of the danger? This must undoubtedly be submitted to the national government, and the matter would then be brought to this issue, that the national government, to provide against apprehended danger, might in the first instance raise troops, and might afterwards keep them on foot, as long as they supposed the peace or safety of the community was in any degree of jeopardy. It is easy to perceive that a discretion so latitudinary as this would afford ample room for eluding the force of the provision. The supposed utility of a provision of this kind can only be founded on the supposed probability, or at least possibility, of a combination between the executive and the legislative in some scheme of usurpation. Should this at any time happen, how easy would it be to fabricate pretenses of approaching danger? Indian hostilities, instigated by Spain or Britain, would always be at hand. 
provocations to produce the desired appearances might even be given to some foreign power, and appeased again by timely concessions. If we can reasonably presume such a combination to have been formed, and that the enterprise is warranted by a sufficient prospect of success, the army, when once raised, from whatever cause, or on whatever pretext, may be applied to the execution of the project. If, to obviate this consequence, it should be resolved to extend the prohibition to the raising of armies in time of peace, the United States would then exhibit the most extraordinary spectacle which the world has yet seen, that of a nation incapacitated by its constitution to prepare for defense before it was actually invaded. As the ceremony of a formal denunciation of war has of late fallen into disuse, the presence of an enemy within our territories must be waited for, as the legal warrant to the government to begin its levies of men for the protection of the state. We must receive the blow, before we could even prepare to return it. All that kind of policy by which nations anticipate distant danger, and meet the gathering storm, must be abstained from, as contrary to the genuine maxims of a free government. We must expose our property and liberty to the mercy of foreign invaders, and invite them, by our weakness, to seize the naked and defenceless prey, because we are afraid that rulers created by our choice, dependent on our will, might endanger that liberty, by an abuse of the means necessary to its preservation. Here I expect we shall be told that the militia of the country is its natural bulwark, and would be at all times equal to the national defence. This doctrine, in substance, had like to have lost us our independence. It cost millions to the United States that might have been saved. The facts which, from our own experience, forbid a reliance of this kind, are too recent to permit us to be the dupes of such a suggestion. The steady operations of war, against a regular and disciplined army, can only be successfully conducted by a force of the same kind. Considerations of economy, not less than of stability and vigor, confirm this position. The American militia, in the course of the late war, have, by their valor on numerous occasions, erected eternal monuments to their fame. But the bravest of them feel and know that the liberty of their country could not have been established by their efforts alone, however great and valuable they were. War, like most other things, is a science to be acquired and perfected by diligence, by perseverance, by time, and by practice. All violent policy, as it is contrary to the natural and experienced course of human affairs, defeats itself. Pennsylvania, at this instant, affords an example of the truth of this remark. The Bill of Rights of that state declares that standing armies are dangerous to liberty, and ought not to be kept up in time of peace. Pennsylvania, nevertheless, in a time of profound peace, from the existence of partial disorders in one or two of her counties, has resolved to raise a body of troops, and in all probability will keep them up as long as there is any appearance of danger to the public peace. 
the conduct of Massachusetts affords a lesson on the same subject, though on different ground. That state, without waiting for the sanction of Congress, as the Articles of the Confederation require, was compelled to raise troops to quell a domestic insurrection, and still keeps a corps in pay to prevent a revival of the spirit of revolt. The particular constitution of Massachusetts opposed no obstacle to the measure, but the instance is still of use to instruct us that cases are likely to occur under our government as well as under those of other nations, which will sometimes render a military force in time of peace essential to the security of the society, and that it is therefore improper in this respect to control the legislative discretion. It also teaches us, in its application to the United States, how little the rights of a feeble government are likely to be respected, even by its own constituents. And it teaches us, in addition to the rest, how unequal parchment provisions are to a struggle with public necessity. It was a fundamental maxim of the Lacedaemonian Commonwealth that the post of admiral should not be conferred twice on the same person. The Peloponnesian Confederates, having suffered a severe defeat at sea from the Athenians, demanded Lysander, who had before served with success in that capacity, to command the combined fleets. The Lacedaemonians, to gratify their allies, and yet preserve the semblance of an adherence to their ancient institutions, had recourse to the flimsy subterfuge of investing Lysander with the real power of admiral under the nominal title of vice-admiral. This instance is selected from among a multitude that might be cited to confirm the truth already advanced and illustrated by domestic examples, which is, that nations pay little regard to rules and maxims calculated in their very nature to run counter to the necessities of society. Wise politicians will be cautious about fettering the government with restrictions that cannot be observed, because they know that every breach of the fundamental laws, though dictated by necessity, impairs that sacred reverence which ought to be maintained in the breast of rulers towards the constitution of a country, and forms a precedent for other breaches where the same plea of necessity does not exist at all, or is less urgent and palpable. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 25《Federalist No. 26 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist No. 26. The idea of restraining the legislative authority in regard to the common defense considered. For the Independent Journal, Saturday, December 22, 1787. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. 
it was a thing hardly to be expected that in a popular revolution the minds of men should stop at that happy mean which marks the salutary boundary between power and privilege and combines the energy of government with the security of private rights a failure in this delicate and important point is the great source of the inconveniences we experience and if we are not cautious to avoid a repetition of the error in our future attempts to rectify and ameliorate our system we may travel from one chimerical project to another we may try change after change but we shall never be likely to make any material change for the better the idea of restraining the legislative authority in the means of providing for the national defense is one of those refinements which owe their origin to a zeal for liberty more ardent than enlightened we have seen however that it has not had thus far an extensive prevalency that even in this country where it made its first appearance pennsylvania and north carolina are the only two states by which it has been in any degree patronized and that all the others have refused to give it the least countenance wisely judging that confidence must be placed somewhere that the necessity of doing it is implied in the very act of delegating power and that it is better to hazard the abuse of that confidence than to embarrass the government and endanger the public safety by impolitic restrictions on the legislative authority the opponents of the proposed constitution combat in this respect the general decision of america and instead of being taught by experience the propriety of correcting any extremes into which we may have heretofore run they appear disposed to conduct us into others still more dangerous and more extravagant as if the tone of government had been found too high or too rigid the doctrines they teach are calculated to induce us to depress or to relax it by expedients which upon other occasions have been condemned or forborne it may be affirmed without the imputation of invective that if the principles they inculcate on various points could so far obtain as to become the popular creed they would utterly unfit the people of this country for any species of government whatever but a danger of this kind is not to be apprehended the citizens of america have too much discernment to be argued into anarchy and i am much mistaken if experience has not wrought a deep and solemn conviction in the public mind that greater energy of government is essential to the welfare and prosperity of the community it may not be amiss in this place concisely to remark the origin and progress of the idea which aims at the exclusion of military establishments in time of peace though in speculative minds it may arise from a contemplation of the nature and tendency of such institutions fortified by the events that have happened in other ages and countries yet as a national sentiment it must be traced to those habits of thinking which we derive from the nation from whom the inhabitants of these states have in general sprung in england for a long time after the norman conquest the authority of the monarch was almost unlimited inroads were gradually made upon the prerogative in favour of liberty first by the barons and afterwards by the people 
till the greatest part of its most formidable pretensions became extinct. But it was not till the revolution in 1688, which elevated the Prince of Orange to the throne of Great Britain, that English liberty was completely triumphant. As incident to the undefined power of making war, an acknowledged prerogative of the crown, Charles II had, by his own authority, kept on foot in time of peace a body of five thousand regular troops. And this number James II increased to thirty thousand, who were paid out of his civil list. At the Revolution, to abolish the exercise of so dangerous an authority, it became an article of the Bill of Rights then framed, that the raising or keeping a standing army within the kingdom in time of peace, unless with the consent of Parliament, was against law. In that kingdom, when the pulse of liberty was at its highest pitch, no security against the danger of standing armies was thought requisite, beyond a prohibition of their being raised or kept up by the mere authority of the executive magistrate. The patriots, who effected that memorable revolution, were too temperate, too well informed, to think of any restraint on the legislative discretion. They were aware that a certain number of troops for guards and garrisons were indispensable, that no precise bounds could be set to the national exigencies, that a power equal to every possible contingency must exist somewhere in the government, and that when they referred the exercise of that power to the judgment of the legislature, they had arrived at the ultimate point of precaution which was reconcilable with the safety of the community. From the same source, the people of America may be said to have derived an hereditary impression of danger to liberty from standing armies in time of peace. The circumstances of a revolution quickened the public sensibility on every point connected with the security of popular rights, and in some instances raised the warmth of our zeal beyond the degree which consisted with the due temperature of the body politic. The attempts of two of the states to restrict the authority of the legislature in the article of military establishments are of the number of these instances. The principles which had taught us to be jealous of the power of an hereditary monarch were by an injudicious excess extended to the representatives of the people in their popular assemblies. Even in some of the states, where this error was not adopted, we find unnecessary declarations that standing armies ought not to be kept up, in time of peace, without the consent of the legislature. I call them unnecessary, because the reason which had introduced a similar provision into the English Bill of Rights is not applicable to any of the state constitutions. The power of raising armies at all under those constitutions, can by no construction be deemed to reside anywhere else than in the legislatures themselves. And it was superfluous, if not absurd, to declare that a matter should not be done without the consent of a body which alone had the power of doing it. Accordingly, in some of these constitutions, and among others, in that of this state of New York, which has been justly celebrated, both in Europe and America, as one of the best of the forms of government established in this country, 
there is a total silence upon the subject. It is remarkable that even in the two states which seem to have meditated an interdiction of military establishments in time of peace, the mode of expression made use of is rather cautionary than prohibitory. It is not said that standing armies shall not be kept up, but that they ought not to be kept up in time of peace. This ambiguity of terms appears to have been the result of a conflict between jealousy and conviction, between the desire of excluding such establishments at all events, and the persuasion that an absolute exclusion would be unwise and unsafe. Can it be doubted that such a provision, whenever the situation of public affairs was understood to require a departure from it, would be interpreted by the legislature into a mere admonition, and would be made to yield to the necessities, or supposed necessities, of the state. Let the fact already mentioned, with respect to Pennsylvania, decide. What then, it may be asked, is the use of such a provision, if it cease to operate the moment there is an inclination to disregard it? Let us examine whether there be any comparison, in point of efficacy, between the provision alluded to and that which is contained in the new Constitution for restraining the appropriations of money for military purposes to the period of two years. The former, by aiming at too much, is calculated to effect nothing. The latter, by steering clear of an imprudent extreme, and by being perfectly compatible with a proper provision for the exigencies of the nation, will have a salutary and powerful operation. The legislature of the United States will be obliged, by this provision, once at least in every two years, to deliberate upon the propriety of keeping a military force on foot, to come to a new resolution on the point, and to declare their sense of the matter by a formal vote in the face of their constituents. They are not at liberty to vest in the executive department permanent funds for the support of an army, if they were even incautious enough to be willing to repose in it so improper a confidence. As the spirit of party, in different degrees, must be expected to infect all political bodies, there will be, no doubt, persons in the national legislature willing enough to arraign the measures and criminate the views of the majority. The provision for the support of a military force will always be a favorable topic for declamation. As often as the question comes forward, the public attention will be roused and attracted to the subject by the party in opposition. And if the majority should be really disposed to exceed the proper limits, the community will be warned of the danger, and will have an opportunity of taking measures to guard against it. Independent of parties in the national legislature itself, as often as the period of discussion arrived, the state legislatures, who will always be not only vigilant but suspicious and jealous guardians of the rights of the citizens against encroachments from the federal government, will constantly have their attention awake to the conduct of the national rulers, and will be ready enough, if anything improper appears, to sound the alarm to the people, and not only to be the voice, but if necessary, the arm of their discontent.' 
Schemes to subvert the liberties of a great community require time to mature them for execution. An army, so large as seriously to menace those liberties, could only be formed by progressive augmentations, which would suppose not merely a temporary combination between the legislature and executive, but a continued conspiracy for a series of time. Is it probable that such a combination would exist at all? Is it probable that it would be persevered in and transmitted along through all the successive variations in a representative body, which biennial elections would naturally produce in both houses? Is it presumable that every man, the instant he took his seat in the National Senate or House of Representatives, would commence a traitor to his constituents and to his country? Can it be supposed that there would not be found one man, discerning enough to detect so atrocious a conspiracy, or bold or honest enough to apprise his constituents of their danger? If such presumptions can fairly be made, there ought at once to be an end of all delegated authority. The people should resolve to recall all the powers they have heretofore parted with out of their own hands, and to divide themselves into as many states as there are counties, in order that they may be able to manage their own concerns in person. If such suppositions could even be reasonably made, still the concealment of the design, for any duration, would be impracticable. It would be announced by the very circumstance of augmenting the army to so great an extent in time of profound peace. What colourable reason could be assigned, in a country so situated, for such vast augmentations of the military force? It is impossible that the people could be long deceived, and the destruction of the project, and of the projectors, would quickly follow the discovery. It has been said that the provision which limits the appropriation of money for the support of an army to the period of two years would be unavailing, because the executive, when once possessed of a force large enough to all the people into submission, would find resources in that very force sufficient to enable him to dispense with supplies from the acts of the legislature. But the question again recurs. Upon what pretense could he be put in possession of a force of that magnitude in time of peace? If we suppose it to have been created in consequence of some domestic insurrection or foreign war, then it becomes a case not within the principles of the objection, for this is levelled against the power of keeping up troops in time of peace. Few persons will be so visionary as seriously to contend that military forces ought not to be raised to quell a rebellion or resist an invasion and if the defence of the community under such circumstances should make it necessary to have an army so numerous as to hazard its liberty, this is one of those calamities for which there is neither preventative nor cure. It cannot be provided against by any possible form of government. It might even result from a simple league offensive and defensive, if it should ever be necessary for the Confederates or Allies to form an army for common defence. 
but it is an evil infinitely less likely to attend us in a united than in a disunited state. Nay, it may be safely asserted that it is an evil altogether unlikely to attend us in the latter situation. It is not easy to conceive a possibility that dangers so formidable can assail the whole Union, as to demand a force considerable enough to place our liberties in the least jeopardy, especially if we take into our view the aid to be derived from the militia, which ought always to be counted upon as a valuable and powerful auxiliary. But in a state of disunion, as has been fully shown in another place, the contrary of this supposition would become not only probable, but almost unavoidable. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 26 Federalist Number 27 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 27. The same subject continued, the idea of restraining the legislative authority in regard to the common defense considered. From the New York Packet, Tuesday, December 25th, 1787. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. It has been urged, in different shapes, that a constitution of the kind proposed by the Convention cannot operate without the aid of a military force to execute its laws. This, however, like most other things that have been alleged on that side, rests on mere general assertion, unsupported by any precise or intelligible designation of the reasons upon which it is founded. As far as I have been able to divine the latent meaning of the objectors, it seems to originate in a presumption that the people will be disinclined to the exercise of federal authority in any matter of an internal nature. Waiving any exception that might be taken to the inaccuracy or inexplicitness of the distinction between internal and external, let us inquire what ground there is to presuppose that disinclination in the people. Unless we presume at the same time that the powers of the general government will be worse administered than those of the state government, there seems to be no room for the presumption of ill-will, disaffection, or opposition in the people. I believe it may be laid down as a general rule that their confidence in and obedience to a government will commonly be proportioned to the goodness or badness of its administration. It must be admitted that there are exceptions to this rule, but these exceptions depend so entirely on accidental causes that they cannot be considered as having any relation to the intrinsic merits or demerits of a constitution. These can only be judged of by general principles and maxims. Various reasons have been suggested, in the course of these papers, to induce a probability that the general government will be better administered than the particular governments. 
the principal of which reasons are that the extension of the spheres of election will present a greater option, or latitude of choice, to the people, that through the medium of the state legislatures which are select bodies of men, and which are to appoint the members of the National Senate, there is reason to expect that this branch will generally be composed with peculiar care and judgment, that these circumstances promise greater knowledge and more extensive information in the national councils, and that they will be less apt to be tainted by the spirit of faction, and more out of the reach of those occasional ill-humours or temporary prejudices and propensities which, in smaller societies, frequently contaminate the public councils, beget injustice and oppression of a part of the community, and engender schemes which, though they gratify a momentary inclination or desire, terminate in general distress, dissatisfaction, and disgust. Several additional reasons of considerable force, to fortify that probability, will occur when we come to survey, with a more critical eye, the interior structure of the edifice which we are invited to erect. It will be sufficient here to remark that until satisfactory reasons can be assigned to justify an opinion, that the federal government is likely to be administered in such a manner as to render it odious or contemptible to the people, there can be no reasonable foundation for the supposition that the laws of the Union will meet with any greater obstruction from them, or will stand in need of any other methods to enforce their execution than the laws of the particular members. The hope of impunity is a strong incitement to sedition, the dread of punishment a proportionably strong discouragement to it. Will not the government of the Union, which, if possessed of a due degree of power, can call to its aid the collective resources of the whole Confederacy, be more likely to repress the former sentiment and to inspire the latter than that of a single state, which can only command the resources within itself. A turbulent faction in a state may easily suppose itself able to contend with the friends to the government in that state, but it can hardly be so infatuated as to imagine itself a match for the combined efforts of the Union. If this reflection be just, there is less danger of resistance from irregular combinations of individuals to the authority of the Confederacy than to that of a single member. I will, in this place, hazard an observation, which will not be the less just because to some it may appear new, which is that the more the operations of the national authority are intermingled in the ordinary exercise of government, the more the citizens are accustomed to meet with it in the common occurrences of their political life, the more it is familiarized to their sight and to their feelings, the further it enters into those objects which touch the most sensible chords and put in motion the most active springs of the human heart, the greater will be the probability that it will conciliate the respect and attachment of the community. Man is very much a creature of habit. A thing that rarely strikes his senses will generally have but little influence upon his mind. 
a government continually at a distance and out of sight can hardly be expected to interest the sensations of the people. The inference is that the authority of the Union, and the affections of the citizens towards it, will be strengthened, rather than weakened, by its extension to what are called matters of internal concern, and will have less occasion to recur to force in proportion to the familiarity and comprehensiveness of its agency. The more it circulates through those channels and currents in which the passions of mankind naturally flow, the less will it require the aid of the violent and perilous expedients of compulsion. One thing, at all events, must be evident, that a government like the one proposed would bid much fairer to avoid the necessity of using force than that species of league contend for by most of its opponents, the authority of which should only operate upon the states in their political or collective capacities. It has been shown that in such a confederacy there can be no sanction for the laws but force, that frequent delinquencies in the members are the natural offspring of the very frame of the government, and that as often as these happen, they can only be redressed, if at all, by war and violence. The plan reported by the Convention, by extending the authority of the federal head to the individual citizens of the several states, will enable the government to employ the ordinary magistracy of each in the execution of its laws. It is easy to perceive that this will tend to destroy, in the common apprehension, all distinction between the sources from which they might proceed, and will give the federal government the same advantage for securing a due obedience to its authority, which is enjoyed by the government of each state, in addition to the influence on public opinion which will result from the important consideration of its having power to call to its assistance and support the resources of the whole Union. It merits particular attention in this place, that the laws of the Confederacy, as to the enumerated and legitimate objects of its jurisdiction, will become the supreme law of the land, to the observance of which all officers, legislative, executive, and judicial, in each state, will be bound by the sanctity of an oath. Thus, the legislatures, courts, and magistrates of the respective members will be incorporated into the operations of the national government, as far as its just and constitutional authority extends, and will be rendered auxiliary to the enforcement of its laws. Any man who will pursue, by his own reflections, the consequences of this situation, will perceive that there is good ground to calculate upon a regular and peaceable execution of the laws of the Union, if its powers are administered with a common share of prudence. If we will arbitrarily suppose the contrary, we may deduce any inferences we please from the supposition, for it is certainly possible by an injudicious exercise of the authorities of the best government that ever was, or ever can be instituted, to provoke and precipitate the people into the wildest excesses. But though the adversaries of the proposed Constitution should presume that the national rulers would be insensible to the motives of public good, or to the obligations of duty, 
I would still ask them how the interests of ambition, or the views of encroachment, can be promoted by such a conduct. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 27《Number 28 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 28. The same subject continued. The idea of restraining the legislative authority in regard to the common defense considered. For the Independent Journal, Wednesday, December 26, 1787. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. That there may happen cases in which the national government may be necessitated to resort to force cannot be denied. Our own experience has corroborated the lessons taught by the examples of other nations, that emergencies of this sort will sometimes arise in all societies, however constituted, that seditions and insurrections are, unhappily, maladies as inseparable from the body politic as tumors and eruptions from the natural body, that the idea of governing at all times by the simple force of law which we have been told is the only admissible principle of republican government, has no place but in the reveries of those political doctors whose sagacity disdains the admonitions of experimental instruction. Should such emergencies at any time happen under the national government, there could be no remedy but force. The means to be employed must be proportioned to the extent of the mischief, if it should be a slight commotion in a small part of a state, the militia of the residue would be adequate to its suppression, and the national presumption is that they would be ready to do their duty. An insurrection, whatever may be its immediate cause, eventually endangers all government. Regard to the public peace, if not to the rights of the Union, would engage the citizens to whom the contagion had not communicated itself to oppose the insurgents, and if the general government should be found in practice conducive to the prosperity and felicity of the people, it were irrational to believe that they would be disinclined to its support. If, on the contrary, the insurrection should pervade a whole state, or a principal part of it, the employment of a different kind of force might become unavoidable. It appears that Massachusetts found it necessary to raise troops for repressing the disorders within that state, that Pennsylvania, from the mere apprehension of commotions among a part of her citizens, has thought proper to have recourse to the same measure. Suppose the state of New York had been inclined to re-establish her lost jurisdiction over the inhabitants of Vermont— could she have hoped for success in such an enterprise from the efforts of the militia alone? Would she not have been compelled to raise and to maintain a more regular force for the execution of her design? If it must then be admitted that the necessity of recurring to a force different from the militia, in cases of this extraordinary nature, 
is applicable to the state governments themselves, why should the possibility that the national government might be under a like necessity in similar extremities be made an objection to its existence? Is it not surprising that men who declare an attachment to the Union in the abstract should urge as an objection to the proposed Constitution what applies with tenfold weight to the plan for which they contend, and what, as far as it has any foundation in truth, is an inevitable consequence of civil society upon an enlarged scale? Who would not prefer that possibility to the unceasing agitations and frequent revolutions which are the continual scourges of petty republics? Let us pursue this examination in another light. Suppose, in lieu of one general system, two, or three, or even four confederacies were to be formed, would not the same difficulty oppose itself to the operations of either of these confederacies? Would not each of them be exposed to the same casualties, and when these happened, be obliged to have recourse to the same expedients for upholding its authority which are objected to? in a government for all the states? Would the militia in this supposition be more ready or more able to support the federal authority than in the case of a general union? All candid and intelligent men must, upon due consideration, acknowledge that the principle of the objection is equally applicable to either of the two cases, and that whether we have one government for all the states, or different governments for different parcels of them, or even if there should be an entire separation of the states, there might sometimes be a necessity to make use of a force constituted differently from the militia, to preserve the peace of the community, and to maintain the just authority of the laws against those violent invasions of them which amount to insurrections and rebellions." Independent of all other reasonings upon the subject, it is a full answer to those who require a more peremptory provision against military establishments in time of peace, to say that the whole power of the proposed government is to be in the hands of the representatives of the people. This is the essential, and after all, only efficacious security for the rights and privileges of the people, which is attainable in civil society." If the representatives of the people betray their constituents, there is then no resource left but in the exertion of that original right of self-defense which is paramount to all positive forms of government, and which against the usurpations of the national rulers may be exerted with infinitely better prospect of success than against those of the rulers of an individual state. In a single state, if the persons entrusted with supreme power become usurpers, the different parcels, subdivisions, or districts of which it consists, having no distinct governments in each, can take no regular measures for defence. The citizens must rush tumultuously to arms, without concert, without system, without resource, except in their courage and despair. The usurpers, clothed with the forms of legal authority, can too often crush the opposition in embryo. The smaller the extent of the territory, 
the more difficult will it be for the people to form a regular or systematic plan of opposition, and the more easy will it be to defeat their early efforts. Intelligence can be more speedily obtained of their preparations and movements, and the military force and the possession of the usurpers can be more rapidly directed against the part where the opposition has begun. In this situation there must be a peculiar coincidence of circumstances to ensure success to the popular resistance. The obstacles to usurpation and the facilities of resistance increase with the increased extent of the state, provided the citizens understand their rights and are disposed to defend them. The natural strength of the people in a large community, in proportion to the artificial strength of the government, is greater than in a small, and of course more competent to a struggle with the attempts of the government to establish a tyranny. But in a confederacy the people, without exaggeration, may be said to be entirely the masters of their own fate. Power being almost always the rival of power, the general government will at all times stand ready to check the usurpations of the state governments, and these will have the same disposition towards the general government. The people, by throwing themselves into either scale, will infallibly make it preponderate. If their rights are invaded by either, they can make use of the other as the instrument of redress. How wise will it be in them, by cherishing the Union, to preserve to themselves an advantage which can never be too highly prized? It may safely be received as an axiom in our political system, that the state governments will, in all possible contingencies, afford complete security against invasions of the public liberty by the national authority. Projects of usurpation cannot be masked under pretenses so likely to escape the penetration of select bodies of men as of the people at large. The legislatures will have better means of information. They can discover the danger at a distance, and possessing all the organs of civil power and the confidence of the people, they can at once adopt a regular plan of opposition, in which they can combine all the resources of the community. They can readily communicate with each other in the different states, and unite their common forces for the protection of their common liberty. The great extent of the country is a further security. We have already experienced its utility against the attacks of a foreign power, and it would have precisely the same effect against the enterprises of ambitious rulers in the national councils. If the federal army should be able to quell the resistance of one state, the distant states would have it in their power to make head with fresh forces. The advantages obtained in one place must be abandoned to subdue the opposition in others, and the moment the part which has been reduced to submission was left to itself, its efforts would be renewed, and its resistance revive. We should recollect that the extent of the military force must, at all events, be regulated by the resources of the country. For a long time to come, it will not be possible to maintain a large army, and as the means of doing this increase, the population and natural strength of the community will proportionably increase. 
when will the time arrive that the federal government can raise and maintain an army capable of erecting a despotism over the great body of the people of an immense empire who are in a situation through the medium of their state governments to take measures for their own defence with all the celerity regularity and system of independent nations the apprehension may be considered as a disease for which there can be found no cure in the resources of argument and reasoning signed publius end of federalist number 28federalist number 29 of the federalist papers this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina the federalist papers by alexander hamilton john jay and james madison federalist number 29 concerning the militia from the New York Packet, Wednesday, January ninth, seventeen eighty eight. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. The power of regulating the militia and of commanding its services in times of insurrection and invasion are natural incidents to the duties of superintending the common defense and of watching over the internal peace of the Confederacy. It requires no skill in the science of war to discern that uniformity in the organization and discipline of the militia would be attended with the most beneficial effects, whenever they were called into service for the public defense. It would enable them to discharge the duties of the camp and of the field with mutual intelligence and concert, and advantage of peculiar moment in the operations of an army and it would fit them much sooner to acquire the degree of proficiency in military functions which would be essential to their usefulness. This desirable uniformity can only be accomplished by confiding the regulation of the militia to the direction of the national authority. It is, therefore, with the most evident propriety, that the plan of the Convention proposes to empower the Union to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the States, respectively, the appointment of the officers, and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. Of the different grounds which have been taken in opposition to the plan of the Convention, there is none that was so little to have been expected, or is so untenable in itself, as the one from which this particular provision has been attacked. If a well-regulated militia be the most natural defence of a free country, it ought certainly to be under the regulation and at the disposal of that body which is constituted the guardian of the national security. If standing armies are dangerous to liberty— an efficacious power over the militia, in the body to whose care the protection of the state is committed, ought, as far as possible, to take away the inducement and the pretext to such unfriendly institutions. If the federal government can command the aid of the militia in those emergencies which call for the military arm, 
in support of the civil magistrate, it can the better dispense with the employment of a different kind of force. If it cannot avail itself of the former, it will be obliged to recur to the latter. To render an army unnecessary will be a more certain method of preventing its existence than a thousand prohibitions upon paper. In order to cast an odium upon the power of calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, it has been remarked that there is nowhere any provision in the proposed Constitution for calling out the posse comitatus, to assist the magistrate in the execution of his duty, whence it has been inferred that military force was intended to be his only auxiliary. There is a striking incoherence in the objections which have appeared, and sometimes even from the same quarter, not much calculated to inspire a very favourable opinion of the sincerity or fair dealing of their authors. The same persons who tell us in one breath that the powers of the federal government will be despotic and unlimited, inform us in the next that it has not authority sufficient even to call out the posse comitatus. The latter, fortunately, is as much short of the truth as the former exceeds it. It would be as absurd to doubt that a right to pass all laws necessary and proper to execute its declared powers would include that of requiring the assistance of the citizens to the officers who may be entrusted with the execution of those laws, as it would be to believe that a right to enact laws necessary and proper for the imposition and collection of taxes would involve that of varying the rules of dissent and of the alienation of landed property, or of abolishing the trial by jury in cases relating to it. It being therefore evident that the supposition of a want of power to require the aid of the posse comitatus is entirely destitute of colour, it will follow that the conclusion which has been drawn from it, in its application to the authority of the federal government over the militia, is as uncandid as it is illogical. What reason could there be to infer that force was intended to be the sole instrument of authority, merely because there is a power to make use of it when necessary? What shall we think of the motives which would induce men of sense to reason in this manner? How shall we prevent a conflict between charity and conviction? By a curious refinement upon the spirit of republican jealousy, we are even taught to apprehend danger from the militia itself, in the hands of the federal government. It is observed that the select corps may be formed, composed of the young and ardent, who may be rendered subservient to the views of arbitrary power. What plan for the regulation of the militia may be pursued by the national government is impossible to be foreseen. But so far from viewing the matter in the same light with those who object to select corps as dangerous, were the Constitution ratified, and were I to, to deliver my sentiments to a member of the federal legislature from this state on the subject of a militia establishment, I should hold to him, in substance, the following discourse. The project of disciplining all the militia of the United States is as futile as it would be injurious, 
if it were capable of being carried into execution. A tolerable expertness in military movements is a business that requires time and practice. It is not a day, or even a week, that will suffice for the attainment of it. To oblige the great body of the yeomanry, and of the other classes of the citizens, to be under arms for the purpose of going through military exercises and evolutions, as often as might be necessary to acquire the degree of perfection which would entitle them to the character of a well-regulated militia, would be a real grievance to the people, and a serious public inconvenience and loss. It would form an annual deduction from the productive labour of the country, to an amount which, calculating upon the present numbers of the people, would not fall far short of the whole expense of the civil establishments of all the states. To attempt a thing which would abridge the mass of labour and industry to so considerable an extent would be unwise, and the experiment, if made, could not succeed, because it would not long be endured. Little more can reasonably be aimed at, with respect to the people at large, than to have them properly armed and equipped, and in order to see that this be not neglected, it will be necessary to assemble them once or twice in the course of a year. But though the scheme of disciplining the whole nation must be abandoned as mischievous or impracticable, yet it is a matter of the utmost importance that a well-digested plan should, as soon as possible, be adopted for the proper establishment of the militia. The attention of the government ought particularly to be directed to the formation of a select corps of moderate extent, upon such principles as will really fit them for service in case of need. By thus circumscribing the plan, it will be possible to have an excellent body of well-trained militia, ready to take the field whenever the defence of the state shall require it. This will not only lessen the call for military establishments, but if circumstances should at any time oblige the government to form an army of any magnitude, that army can never be formidable to the liberties of the people while there is a large body of citizens, little, if at all, inferior to them in discipline and the use of arms, who stand ready to defend their own rights and those of their fellow citizens. This appears to me the only substitute that can be devised for a standing army, and the best possible security against it, if it should exist. Thus, differently from the adversaries of the proposed Constitution, should I reason on the same subject, deducing arguments of safety from the very sources which they represent as fraught with danger and perdition. But how the National Legislature may reason on the point— is a thing which neither they nor I can foresee. There is something so far-fetched and so extravagant in the idea of danger to liberty from the militia, that one is at a loss whether to treat it with gravity or with raillery, whether to consider it as a mere trial of skill, like the paradoxes of rhetoricians, or a disingenuous artifice to instill prejudices at any price, or as the serious offspring of political fanaticism. Where in the name of common sense are our fears to end if we may not trust our sons, our brothers, 
our neighbours, our fellow-citizens. What shadow of danger can there be from men who are daily mingling with the rest of their countrymen, and who participate with them in the same feelings, sentiments, habits, and interests? What reasonable cause of apprehension can be inferred from a power in the Union to prescribe regulations for the militia, and to command its services when necessary, while the particular states are to have the sole and exclusive appointment of the officers? If it were possible seriously to indulge a jealousy of the militia upon any conceivable establishment under the federal government, the circumstance of the officers being in the appointment of the states ought at once to extinguish it. There can be no doubt that this circumstance will always secure to them a preponderating influence over the militia. In reading many of the publications against the Constitution, a man is apt to imagine that he is perusing some ill-written tale or romance, which instead of natural and agreeable things, exhibits to the mind nothing but frightful and distorted shapes. Gorgons, hydras, and chimeras dire, <laughs> discoloring and disfiguring whatever it represents, and transforming everything it touches into a monster. A sample of this is to be observed in the exaggerated and improbable suggestions which have taken place respecting the power of calling for the services of the militia. That of New Hampshire is to be marched to Georgia, of Georgia to New Hampshire, of New York to Kentucky, and of Kentucky to Lake Champlain. <laughs> Nay, the debts due to the French and Dutch are to be paid in militiamen instead of louis d'or and ducats. At one moment there is to be a large army to lay prostrate the liberties of the people. At another moment the militia of Virginia are to be dragged from their homes five or six hundred miles to tame the republican contumacy of Massachusetts, and that of Massachusetts to be transported an equal distance to subdue the refractory haughtiness of the aristocratic Virginians. Do the persons who rave at this rate imagine that their art or their eloquence can impose any conceits or absurdities upon the people of America for infallible truths? If there should be an army to be made use of as the engine of despotism, what need of the militia? If there should be no army, whither would the militia, irritated by being called upon to undertake a distant and hopeless expedition for the purpose of riveting the chains of slavery upon a part of their countrymen, direct their course, but to the seat of the tyrants, who had meditated so foolish as well as so wicked a project, to crush them in their imagined entrenchments of power, and to make them an example of the just vengeance of an abused and incensed people. Is this the way in which usurpers stride to dominion over a numerous and enlightened nation? Do they begin by exciting the detestation of the very instruments of their intended usurpations? Do they usually commence their career by wanton and disgustful acts of power, calculated to answer no end, but to draw upon themselves universal hatred and execration? Are suppositions of this sort the sober admonitions of discerning patriots to a discerning people? Or are they, 
the inflammatory ravings of incendiaries or distempered enthusiasts if we were even to suppose the national rulers actuated by the most ungovernable ambition it is impossible to believe that they would employ such preposterous means to accomplish their designs in times of insurrection or invasion it would be natural and proper that the militia of a neighbouring state should be marched into another to resist a common enemy or to guard the republic against the violence of faction or sedition this was frequently the case in respect to the first object in the course of the late war and this mutual succour is indeed a principal end of our political association if the power of affording it be placed under the direction of the union there will be no danger of a supine and listless inattention to the dangers of a neighbour till its near approach had superadded the incitements of self-preservation to the too feeble impulses of duty and sympathy signed publius end of federalist number twenty nine Federalist number thirty of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist number thirty concerning the general power of taxation from the new york packet friday december twenty eighth seventeen eighty seven hamilton to the people of the state of new york it has been already observed that the federal government ought to possess the power of providing for the support of the national forces in which proposition was intended to be included the expense of raising troops of building and equipping fleets and all other expenses in any wise connected with military arrangements and operations but these are not the only objects to which the jurisdiction of the union in respect to revenue must necessarily be empowered to extend it must embrace a provision for the support of the national civil list for the payment of the national debts contracted or that may be contracted and in general for all those matters which will call for disbursements out of the national treasury the conclusion is that there must be interwoven in the frame of the government a general power of taxation in one shape or another money is with propriety considered as the vital principle of the body politic as that which sustains its life and motion and enables it to perform its most essential functions a complete power therefore to procure a regular and adequate supply of it as far as the resources of the community will permit may be regarded as an indispensable ingredient in every constitution from a deficiency in this particular one of two evils must ensue either the people must be subjected to continual plunder as a substitute for a more eligible mode of supplying the public wants or the government must sink into a fatal atrophy and in a short course of time perish in the ottoman or turkish empire the sovereign though in other respects absolute master of the lives and fortunes of his subjects 
has no right to impose a new tax. The consequence is that he permits the bashaws or governors of provinces to pillage the people without mercy, and, in turn, squeezes out of them the sums of which he stands in need, to satisfy his own exigencies and those of the state. In America, from a like cause, the government of the Union has gradually dwindled into a state of decay, approaching nearly to annihilation. Who can doubt that the happiness of the people in both countries would be promoted by competent authorities in the proper hands to provide the revenues which the necessities of the public might require? The present Confederation, feeble as it is intended to repose in the United States, an unlimited power for providing for the pecuniary wants of the Union, but proceeding upon an erroneous principle, it has been done in such a manner as entirely to have frustrated the intention. Congress, by the articles which compose that compact, as has already been stated, are authorized to ascertain and call for any sums of money necessary, in their judgment, to the service of the United States, and their requisitions, if conformable to the rule of apportionment, are in every constitutional sense obligatory upon the States. These have no right to question the propriety of the demand, no discretion beyond that of devising the ways and means of furnishing the sums demanded. But though this be strictly and truly the case, though the assumption of such a right would be an infringement of the Articles of Union, though it may seldom or never have been avowedly claimed, yet in practice it has been constantly exercised, and would continue to be so, as long as the revenues of the Confederacy should remain dependent on the intermediate agency of its members. What the consequences of this system have been is within the knowledge of every man the least conversant in our public affairs, and has been amply unfolded in different parts of these inquiries. It is this which has chiefly contributed to reduce us to a situation which affords ample cause both of mortification to ourselves and of triumph to our enemies. What remedy can there be for this situation but in a change of the system which has produced it in a change of the fallacious and delusive system of quotas and requisitions? What substitute can there be imagined for this ignis fatuus in finance, but that of permitting the national government to raise its own revenues by the ordinary methods of taxation authorized in every well-ordered constitution of civil government? Ingenious men may declaim with plausibility on any subject, but no human ingenuity can point out any other expedient to rescue us from the inconveniences and embarrassments naturally resulting from defective supplies of the public treasury. The more intelligent adversaries of the new constitution admit the force of this reasoning, but they qualify their admission by a distinction between what they call internal and external taxation. The former they would reserve to the state governments, the latter, which they explain into commercial imposts, or rather duties on imported articles, they declare themselves willing to concede to the federal head. This distinction, however, would violate the maxim of good sense and sound policy, which dictates that every power ought to be in proportion to its object, and would still leave the general government in a kind of tutelage 
to the state governments, inconsistent with every idea of vigor or efficiency. Who can pretend that commercial imposts are, or would be, alone equal to the present and future exigencies of the Union? Taking into the account the existing debt, foreign and domestic, upon any plan of extinguishment which a man moderately impressed with the importance of public justice and public credit could approve, in addition to the establishments which all parties will acknowledge to be necessary, we could not reasonably flatter ourselves that this resource alone, upon the most improved scale, would even suffice for its present necessities. Its future necessities admit not of calculation or limitation, and upon the principle, more than once adverted to, the power of making provision for them as they arise ought to be equally unconfined. I believe it may be regarded as a position warranted by the history of mankind, that in the usual progress of things, the necessities of a nation, in every stage of its existence, will be found at least equal to its resources. To say that deficiencies may be provided for by requisitions upon the states is on the one hand to acknowledge that this system cannot be depended upon, and on the other hand to depend upon it for everything beyond a certain limit. Those who have carefully attended to its vices and deformities, as they have been exhibited by experience or delineated in the course of these papers, must feel invincible repugnancy in trusting the national interests in any degree to its operation. Its inevitable tendency, whenever it is brought into activity, must be to enfeeble the Union, and sow the seeds of discord and contention between the Federal Head and its members, and between the members themselves. Can it be expected that the deficiencies would be better supplied in this mode than the total wants of the Union have heretofore been supplied in the same mode? It ought to be recollected that if less will be required from the States, they will have proportionably less means to answer the demand. If the opinion of those who contend for the distinction which has been mentioned were to be received as evidence of truth, one would be led to conclude that there was some known point in the economy of national affairs at which it would be safe to stop and say, Thus far the ends of public happiness will be promoted by supplying the wants of government, and all beyond this is unworthy of our care or anxiety. How is it possible that a government half-supplied and always necessitous can fulfill the purposes of its institution, can provide for the security, advance the prosperity, or support the reputation of the commonwealth? How can it ever possess either energy or stability, dignity or credit, confidence at home or respectability abroad? How can its administration be anything else than a succession of expedients, temporizing, impotent, disgraceful? How will it be able to avoid a frequent sacrifice of its engagements to immediate necessity? How can it undertake or execute any liberal or enlarged plans of public good? Let us attend to what would be the effects of this situation in the very first war in which we should happen to be engaged. We will presume, for argument's sake, 
that the revenue arising from the impost duties answers the purposes of a provision for the public debt and of a peace establishment for the union thus circumstanced a war breaks out what would be the probable conduct of the government in such an emergency taught by experience that proper dependence could not be placed on the success of requisitions unable by its own authority to lay hold of fresh resources and urged by considerations of national danger would it not be driven to the expedient of diverting the funds already appropriated from their proper objects to the defence of the state it is not easy to see how a step of this kind could be avoided and if it should be taken it is evident that it would prove the destruction of public credit at the very moment that it was becoming essential to the public safety to imagine that at such a crisis credit might be dispensed with would be the extreme of infatuation in the modern system of war nations the most wealthy are obliged to have recourse to large loans a country so little opulent as ours must feel this necessity in a much stronger degree but who would lend to a government that prefaced its overtures for borrowing by an act which demonstrated that no reliance could be placed on the steadiness of its measures for paying the loans it might be able to procure would be as limited in their extent as burdensome in their conditions they will be made upon the same principles that usurers commonly lend to bankrupt and fraudulent debtors with a sparing hand and at enormous premiums it may perhaps be imagined that from the scantiness of the resources of the country the necessity of diverting the established funds in the case supposed would exist though the national government should possess an unrestrained power of taxation but two considerations will serve to quiet all apprehension on this head one is that we are sure the resources of the community in their full extent will be brought into activity for the benefit of the union the other is that whatever deficiencies there may be can without difficulty be supplied by loans the power of creating new funds upon new objects of taxation by its own authority would enable the national government to borrow as far as its necessities might require foreigners as well as the citizens of america could then reasonably repose confidence in its engagements but depend upon a government that must itself depend upon thirteen other governments for the means of fulfilling its contracts when once its situation is clearly understood would require a degree of credulity not often to be met with in the pecuniary transactions of mankind and little reconcilable with the usual sharp-sightedness of avarice reflections of this kind may have trifling weight with men who hope to see realized in america the halcyon scenes of the poetic or fabulous age but to those who believe we are likely to experience a common portion of the vicissitudes and calamities which have fallen to the lot of other nations they must appear entitled to serious attention such men must behold the actual situation of their country with painful solicitude and deprecate the evils which ambition or revenge might with too much facility inflict upon it 
Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 30《Federalist Number 31 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 31. The same subject continued, concerning the general power of taxation. From the New York Packet, Tuesday, January 1st, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. In disquisitions of every kind, there are certain primary truths, or first principles, upon which all subsequent reasonings must depend. These contain an internal evidence which, antecedent to all reflection or combination, commands the assent of the mind. Where it produces not this effect, it must proceed either from some defect or disorder in the organs of perception, or from the influence of some strong interest or passion or prejudice. Of this nature are the maxims in geometry, that the whole is greater than the part, things equal to the same are equal to one another, two straight lines cannot enclose a space, and all right angles are equal to each other. Of the same nature are these other maxims in ethics and politics, that there cannot be an effect without a cause, that the means ought to be proportioned to the end, that every power ought to be commensurate with its object, that there ought to be no limitation of a power destined to effect a purpose which is itself incapable of limitation. And there are other truths in the two latter sciences which, if they cannot pretend to rank in the class of axioms, are yet such direct inferences from them, and so obvious in themselves, and so agreeable to the natural and unsophisticated dictates of common sense, that they challenge the assent of a sound and unbiased mind with a degree of force and conviction almost equally irresistible. The objects of geometrical inquiry are so entirely abstracted from those pursuits which stir up and put in motion the unruly passions of the human heart, that mankind, without difficulty, adopt not only the more simple theorems of the science, but even those abstruse paradoxes which, however they may appear susceptible of demonstration, are at variance with the natural conceptions which the mind, without the aid of philosophy, would be led to entertain upon the subject. The infinite divisibility of matter, or, in other words, the infinite divisibility of a finite thing, extending even to the minutest atom, is a point agreed among geometricians though not less incomprehensible to common sense than any of those mysteries in religion against which the batteries of infidelity have been so industriously levelled. But in the sciences of morals and politics men are found far less tractable. To a certain degree it is right and useful that this should be the case. Caution and investigation are a necessary armour against error and imposition. 
but this untractableness may be carried too far, and may degenerate into obstinacy, perverseness, or disingenuity. Though it cannot be pretended that the principles of moral and political knowledge have, in general, the same degree of certainty with those of the mathematics, yet they have much better claims in this respect than, to judge from the conduct of men in particular situations, we should be disposed to allow them. The obscurity is much oftener in the passions and prejudices of the reasoner than in the subject. Men, upon too many occasions, do not give their own understandings fair play, but, yielding to some untoward bias, they entangle themselves in words and confound themselves in subtleties. How else could it happen, if we admit the objectors to be sincere in their opposition, that positions so clear as those which manifest the necessity of a general power of taxation in the government of the Union should have to encounter any adversaries among men of discernment. Though these positions have been elsewhere fully stated, they will perhaps not be improperly recapitulated in this place as introductory to an examination of what may have been offered by way of objection to them. They are in substance as follows. A government ought to contain in itself every power requisite to the full accomplishment of the objects committed to its care, and to the complete execution of the trusts for which it is responsible, free from every other control but a regard to the public good and to the sense of the people. As the duties of superintending the national defense and of securing the public peace against foreign or domestic violence involve a provision for casualties and dangers to which no possible limits can be assigned, the power of making that provision ought to know no other bounds than the exigencies of the nation and the resources of the community. As revenue is the essential engine by which the means of answering the national exigencies must be procured, the power of procuring that article in its full extent must necessarily be comprehended in that of providing for those exigencies. As theory and practice conspire to prove that the power of procuring revenue is unavailing when exercised over the states in their collective capacities, the federal government must of necessity be invested with an unqualified power of taxation in the ordinary modes. Did not experience evince the contrary, it would be natural to conclude that the propriety of a general power of taxation in the national government might safely be permitted to rest on the evidence of those propositions, unassisted by any additional arguments or illustrations. But we find, in fact, that the antagonists of the proposed Constitution, so far from acquiescing in their justness or truth, seem to make their principal and most zealous effort against this part of the plan. It may therefore be satisfactory to analyze the arguments with which they combat it. Those of them which have been most labored with that view seem in substance to amount to this. It is not true, because the exigencies of the Union may not be susceptible of limitation, that its power of laying taxes ought to be unconfined. Revenue is as requisite to the purposes of the local administrations as to that of the Union, and the former are at least 
of equal importance with the latter, to the happiness of the people. It is, therefore, as necessary that the state governments should be able to command the means of supplying their wants, as that of the national government should possess the like faculty in respect to the wants of the Union. But an indefinite power of taxation in the latter might, and probably would in time, deprive the former of the means of providing for their own necessities, and would subject them entirely to the mercy of the national legislature. As the laws of the Union are to become the supreme law of the land, as it is to have power to pass all laws that may be necessary for carrying into execution the authorities with which it is proposed to vest it, the national government might at any time abolish the taxes imposed for state objects, upon the pretense of an interference with its own. It might allege a necessity of doing this in order to give efficacy to the national revenues, and thus all the resources of taxation might by degrees become the subjects of federal monopoly, to the entire exclusion and destruction of the state governments. This mode of reasoning appears sometimes to turn upon the supposition of usurpation in the national government. At other times, it seems to be designed only as a deduction from the constitutional operation of its intended powers. It is only in the latter light that it can be admitted to have any pretensions to fairness. The moment we launch into conjectures about the usurpations of the federal government, we get into an unfathomable abyss, and fairly put ourselves out of the reach of all reasoning. Imagination may range at pleasure till it gets bewildered amidst the labyrinths of an enchanted castle, and knows not on which side to turn to extricate itself from the perplexities into which it has so rashly adventured. Whatever may be the limits or modifications of the powers of the Union, it is easy to imagine an endless train of possible dangers, and by indulging an excess of jealousy and timidity, we may bring ourselves to a state of absolute skepticism and irresolution. I repeat here what I have observed in substance in another place, that all observations, founded upon the danger of usurpation, ought to be referred to the composition and structure of the government, not to the nature or extent of its powers. The state governments, by their original constitutions, are invested with complete sovereignty. In what does our security consist against usurpation from that quarter? Doubtless in the manner of their formation, and in a due dependence of those who are to administer them upon the people. If the proposed construction of the federal government be found, upon an impartial examination of it, to be such as to afford, to a proper extent, the same species of security, all apprehensions on the score of usurpation ought to be discarded. It should not be forgotten that a disposition in the state governments to encroach upon the rights of the Union is quite as probable as a disposition in the Union to encroach upon the rights of the state governments. What side will be likely to prevail in such a conflict must depend on the means which the contending parties could employ toward ensuring success. As in republics, strength is always on the side of the people, and as there are weighty reasons to induce a belief 
that the state governments will commonly possess most influence over them, the natural conclusion is that such contests will be most apt to end to the disadvantage of the Union, and that there is greater probability of encroachments by the members upon the federal head than by the federal head upon the members. But it is evident that all conjectures of this kind must be extremely vague and fallible, and that it is by far the safest course to lay them all together aside, and to confine our attention wholly to the nature and extent of the powers as they are delineated in the Constitution. Everything beyond this must be left to the prudence and firmness of the people, who, as they will hold the scales in their own hands, it is to be hoped, will always take care to preserve the constitutional equilibrium between the general and the state governments. Upon this ground, which is evidently the true one, it will not be difficult to obviate the objections which have been made to an indefinite power of taxation in the United States. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 31 Federalist Number 32 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 32. The same subject continued concerning the general power of taxation. From the Independent Journal, Wednesday, January 2nd, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York, although I am of opinion that there would be no real danger of the consequences which seem to be apprehended to the State governments from a power in the Union to control them in the levies of money, because I am persuaded that the sense of the people, the extreme hazard of provoking the resentments of the state governments, and a conviction of the utility and necessity of local administrations for local purposes, would be a complete barrier against the oppressive use of such a power. Yet I am willing here to allow, in its full extent, the justness of the reasoning which requires that the individual states should possess an independent and uncontrollable authority to raise their own revenues for the supply of their own wants. And making this concession, I affirm that, with the sole exception of duties on imports and exports, they would, under the plan of the Convention, retain that authority in the most absolute and unqualified sense, and that an attempt on the part of the national government to abridge them in the exercise of it would be a violent assumption of power, unwarranted by any article or clause of its constitution. An entire consolidation of the states into one complete national sovereignty would imply an entire subordination of the parts, and whatever powers might remain in them would be altogether dependent on the general will. But as the plan of the convention aims only at a partial union or consolidation, the state governments would clearly retain all the rights of sovereignty which they before had, and which were not, by that act, exclusively delegated to the United States. 
This exclusive delegation, or rather this alienation, of state sovereignty, would only exist in three cases. Were the Constitution in expressed terms granted an exclusive authority to the Union, where it granted in one instance an authority to the Union, and in another prohibited the states from exercising the like authority, and where it granted an authority to the Union, to which a similar authority in the states would be absolutely and totally contradictory and repugnant. I use these terms to distinguish this last case from another which might appear to resemble it, but which would, in fact, be essentially different. I mean where the exercise of a concurrent jurisdiction might be productive of occasional interferences in the policy of any branch of administration, but would not imply any direct contradiction or repugnancy in point of constitutional authority. These three cases of exclusive jurisdiction in the federal government may be exemplified by the following instances. The last clause but one in the eighth section of the first article provides expressly that Congress shall exercise exclusive legislation over the district to be appropriated as the seat of government. This answers to the first case. The first clause of the same section empowers Congress to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. And the second clause of the tenth section of the same article declares that no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except for the purpose of executing its inspection laws. Hence would result an exclusive power in the Union to lay duties on imports and exports, with the particular exception mentioned, but this power is abridged by another clause, which declares that no tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state, in consequence of which qualification it now only extends to the duties on imports. This answers to the second case. The third will be found in that clause which declares that Congress shall have power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization throughout the United States. This must necessarily be exclusive, because if each state had power to prescribe a distinct rule, there could not be a uniform rule. A case which may perhaps be thought to resemble the latter, but which is in fact widely different, affects the question immediately under consideration. I mean the power of imposing taxes on all articles other than exports and imports. This, I contend, is manifestly a concurrent and co-equal authority in the United States and in the individual states. There is plainly no expression in the granting clause which makes that power exclusive in the Union. There is no independent clause or sentence which prohibits the states from exercising it. So far is this from being the case that a plain and conclusive argument to the contrary is to be deduced from the restraint laid upon the states in relation to duties on imports and exports. This restriction implies an admission that, if it were not inserted, the states would possess the power it excludes, and it implies a further admission that as to all other taxes, the authority of the states remains undiminished. 
In any other view it would be both unnecessary and dangerous. It would be unnecessary, because if the grant to the Union of the power of laying such duties implied the exclusion of the States, or even their subordination in this particular, there could be no need of such a restriction. It would be dangerous, because the introduction of it leads directly to the conclusion which has been mentioned, and which, if the reasoning of the objectors be just, could not have been intended. I mean that the States, in all cases to which the restriction did not apply, would have a concurrent power of taxation with the Union. The restriction in question amounts to what lawyers call a negative pregnant, that is, a negation of one thing and an affirmance of another. A negation of the authority of the States to impose taxes on imports and exports, and an affirmance of their authority to impose them on all other articles. It would be mere sophistry to argue that it was meant to exclude them absolutely from the imposition of taxes of the former kind, and to leave them at liberty to play others subject to the control of the national legislature. The restraining or prohibitory clause only says that they shall not, without the consent of Congress, lay such duties. And if we are to understand this in the sense last mentioned, the Constitution would then be made to introduce a formal provision for the sake of a very absurd conclusion, which is, that the States, with the consent of the National Legislature, might tax imports and exports, and that they might tax every other article, unless controlled by the same body. If this was the intention, why not leave it, in the first instance, to what is alleged to be the natural operation of the original clause, conferring a general power of taxation upon the Union? It is evident that this could not have been the intention, and that it will not bear a construction of the kind. As to a supposition of repugnancy between the power of taxation in the States and in the Union, it cannot be supported in that sense which would be requisite to work an exclusion of the States. It is, indeed, possible that a tax might be laid on a particular article by a State which might render it inexpedient that thus a further tax should be laid on the same article by the Union, but it would not imply a constitutional inability to impose a further tax. The quantity of the imposition, the expediency or inexpediency of an increase on either side, would be mutually questions of prudence. But there would be involved no direct contradiction of power, the particular policy of the national and of the state systems of finance might now and then not exactly coincide, and might require reciprocal forbearances. It is not, however, a mere possibility of inconvenience in the exercise of powers, but an immediate constitutional repugnancy that can by implication alienate and extinguish a pre-existing right of sovereignty. The necessity of a concurrent jurisdiction in certain cases results from the division of the sovereign power, and the rule that all authorities, of which the states are not explicitly divested in favor of the Union, remain with them in full vigor, is not a theoretical consequence of that division, 
but is clearly admitted by the whole tenor of the instrument which contains the articles of the proposed constitution we there find that notwithstanding the affirmative grants of general authorities there has been the most pointed care in those cases where it was deemed improper that the like authorities should reside in the states to insert negative clauses prohibiting the exercise of them by the states the tenth section of the first article consists altogether of such provisions this circumstance is a clear indication of the sense of the convention and furnishes a rule of interpretation out of the body of the act which justifies the position i have advanced and refutes every hypothesis to the contrary signed publius end of federalist number thirty two federalist number thirty three of the federalist papers this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist number 33. The same subject continued, concerning the general power of taxation. From the Independent Journal, Wednesday, January 2nd, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. The residue of the argument against the provisions of the Constitution in respect to taxation is engrafted upon the following clause. The last clause of the eighth section of the first article of the plan under consideration authorizes the national legislature to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the powers by that constitution vested in the government of the united states or in any department or officer thereof and the second clause of the sixth article declares that the constitution and the laws of the united states made in pursuance thereof and the treaties made by their authority shall be the supreme law of the land anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. These two clauses have been the source of much virulent, invective, and petulant declamation against the proposed Constitution. They have been held up to the people in all the exaggerated colors of misrepresentation as the pernicious engines by which their local governments were to be destroyed, and their liberties exterminated as the hideous monster whose devouring jaws would spare neither sex nor age, nor high nor low, nor sacred nor profane. And yet, strange as it may appear, after all this clamour, to those who may have happened to contemplate them in the same light, it may be affirmed with perfect confidence that the constitutional operation of the intended government would be precisely the same if these clauses were entirely obliterated, as if they were repeated in every article. They are only declaratory of a truth which would have resulted by necessary and unavoidable implication from the very act of constituting a federal government, 
and vesting it with certain specified powers. This is so clear a proposition that moderation itself can scarcely listen to the railings which have been so copiously vented against this part of the plan, without emotions that disturb its equanimity. What is a power but the ability or faculty of doing a thing? What is the ability to do a thing but the power of employing the means necessary to its execution? What is a legislative power but a power of making laws? What are the means to execute a legislative power but laws? What is the power of laying and collecting taxes but a legislative power, or a power of making laws to lay and collect taxes? What are the proper means of executing such a power but necessary and proper laws? This simple train of inquiry furnishes us at once with a test by which to judge of the true nature of the clause complained of. It conducts us to this palpable truth, that a power to lay and collect taxes must be a power to pass all laws necessary and proper for the execution of that power. And what does the unfortunate and calumniated provision in question do more than declare the same truth, to wit, that the national legislature, to whom the power of laying and collecting taxes has been previously given, might, in the execution of that power, pass all laws necessary and proper to carry it into effect. I have applied these observations thus particularly to the power of taxation, because it is the immediate subject under consideration and because it is the most important of the authorities proposed to be conferred upon the Union. But the same process will lead to the same result, in relation to all other powers declared in the Constitution. And it is expressly to execute these powers that the sweeping clause, as it has been effectively called, authorizes the National Legislature to pass all necessary and proper laws. If there is anything exceptionable, it must be sought for in the specific powers upon which this general declaration is predicated. The declaration itself, though it may be chargeable with tautology or redundancy, is at least perfectly harmless. But suspicion may ask, why then was it introduced? The answer is, that it could only have been done for greater caution and to guard against all cavilling refinements in those who might hereafter feel a disposition to curtail and evade the legitimate authorities of the Union. The Convention probably foresaw what it has been a principal aim of these papers to inculcate, that the danger which most threatens our political welfare is that the state governments will finally sap the foundations of the Union and might therefore think it necessary, in so cardinal a point, to leave nothing to construction. Whatever may have been the inducement to it, the wisdom of the precaution is evident from the cry which has been raised against it, as that very cry betrays a disposition to question the great and essential truth which it is manifestly the object of that provision to declare." 
but it may be again asked, who is to judge of the necessity and propriety of the laws to be passed for executing the powers of the Union? I answer, first, that this question arises as well and as fully upon the simple grant of those powers as upon the declaratory clause. And I answer, in the second place, that the national government, like every other, must judge, in the first instance, of the proper exercise of its powers, and its constituents in the last. If the federal government shall overpass the just bounds of its authority, and make a tyrannical use of its powers, the people, whose creature it is, must appeal to the standard they have formed, and take such measures to redress the injury done to the Constitution as the exigency may suggest and prudence justify. The propriety of a law, in a constitutional light, must always be determined by the nature of the powers upon which it is founded. Suppose, by some forced constructions of its authority, which indeed cannot easily be imagined, the federal legislature should attempt to vary the laws of dissent in any state, would it not be evident that, in making such an attempt, it had exceeded its jurisdiction and infringed upon that of the state? Suppose again, that upon the pretense of an interference with its revenues, it should undertake to abrogate a land tax imposed by the authority of a state. Would it not be equally evident that this was an invasion of that concurrent jurisdiction in respect to this species of tax, which its constitution plainly supposes to exist in the state governments? If there ever should be a doubt on this head, the credit of it will be entirely due to those reasoners who, in the imprudent zeal of their animosity to the plan of the convention, have laboured to envelop it in a cloud calculated to obscure the plainest and simplest truths. But it is said that the laws of the Union are to be the supreme law of the land. But what inference can be drawn from this, or what would they amount to, if they were not to be supreme? It is evident they would amount to nothing. A law, by the very meaning of the term, includes supremacy. It is a rule which those to whom it is prescribed are bound to observe. This results from every political association. If individuals enter into a state of society, the laws of that society must be the supreme regulator of their conduct. If a number of political societies enter into a larger political society, the laws which the latter may enact pursuant to the powers entrusted to it by its constitution, must necessarily be supreme over those societies, and the individuals of whom they are composed. It would otherwise be a mere treaty, dependent on the good faith of the parties, and not a government, which is only another word for political power and supremacy. But it will not follow from this doctrine that acts of the large society which are not pursuant to its constitutional powers, but which are invasions of the residuary authorities of the smaller societies, will become the supreme law of the land. These will be merely acts of usurpation, and will deserve to be treated as such. Hence we perceive that the clause, which declares the supremacy of the laws of the Union, 
like the one we have just before considered, only declares a truth, which flows immediately and necessarily from the institution of a federal government. It will not, I presume, have escaped observation that it expressly confines this supremacy to laws made pursuant to the Constitution, which I mention merely as an instance of caution in the Convention, since that limitation would have been to be understood, though it had not been expressed. Though a law, therefore, laying a tax for the use of the United States would be supreme in its nature, and could not legally be opposed or controlled, yet a law for abrogating or preventing the collection of a tax laid by the authority of the state, unless upon imports and exports, would not be the supreme law of the land, but a usurpation of power not granted by the Constitution. As far as an improper accumulation of taxes on the same object might tend to render the collection difficult or precarious, this would be a mutual inconvenience, not arising from a superiority or defect of power on either side, but from an injudicious exercise of power by one or the other, in a manner equally disadvantageous to both. It is to be hoped and presumed, however, that mutual interest would dictate a concert in this respect which would avoid any material inconvenience. The inference from the whole is that the individual states would, under the proposed Constitution, retain an independent and uncontrollable authority to raise revenue to any extent of which they may stand in need, by every kind of taxation, except duties on imports and exports. It will be shown in the next paper that this concurrent jurisdiction in the power of taxation was the only admissible substitute for an entire subordination, in respect to this branch of power, of the state authority to that of the Union. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 33《Federalist No. 34 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist No. 34. The same subject continued concerning the general power of taxation. From the Independent Journal, Saturday, January 5, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. I flatter myself it has been clearly shown in my last number that the particular states, under the proposed Constitution, would have co-equal authority with the Union in the article of revenue, except as to duties on imports. As this leaves open to the states far the greatest part of the resources of the community, there can be no color for the assertion that they would not possess means as abundant as could be desired for the supply of their own wants, independent of all external control. That the field is sufficiently wide will more fully appear when we come to advert to the inconsiderable share of the public expenses for which it will fall to the lot of the state governments to provide. 
to argue upon abstract principles that this coordinate authority cannot exist is to set up supposition and theory against fact and reality however proper such reasonings might be to show that a thing ought not to exist they are wholly to be rejected when they are made use of to prove that it does not exist contrary to the evidence of the fact itself it is well known that in the roman republic the legislative authority in the last resort resided for ages in two different political bodies not as branches of the same legislature but as distinct and independent legislatures in each of which an opposite interest prevailed in one the patrician in the other the plebeian many arguments might have been adduced to prove the unfitness of the two such seemingly contradictory authorities each having power to annul or repeal the acts of the other but a man would have been regarded as frantic who should have attempted at rome to disprove their existence it will be readily understood that i allude to the comitia centuriata and the comitia tributa the former in which the people voted by centuries was so arranged as to give a superiority to the patrician interest in the latter in which numbers prevailed the plebeian interest had an entire predominancy and yet these two legislatures coexisted for ages and the roman republic attained to the utmost height of human greatness in the case particularly under consideration there is no such contradiction as appears in the example cited there is no power on either side to annul the acts of the other and in practice there is little reason to apprehend any inconvenience because in a very short course of time the wants of the states will naturally reduce themselves within a very narrow compass and in the interim the united states will in all probability find it convenient to abstain wholly from those objects to which the particular states would be inclined to resort to form a more precise judgment of the true merits of this question it will be well to advert to the proportion between the objects that will require a federal provision in respect to revenue and those which will require a state provision we shall discover that the former are altogether unlimited and that the latter are circumscribed within very moderate bounds in pursuing this inquiry we must bear in mind that we are not to confine our view to the present period but to look forward to remote futurity constitutions of civil government are not to be framed upon a calculation of existing exigencies but upon a combination of these with the probable exigencies of ages according to the natural and tried course of human affairs nothing therefore can be more fallacious than to infer the extent of any power proper to be lodged in the national government from an estimate of its immediate necessities there ought to be a capacity to provide for future contingencies as they may happen and as these are illimitable in their nature it is impossible safely to limit that capacity it is true perhaps that a computation might be made with sufficient accuracy to answer the purpose of the quantity of revenue requisite to discharge the subsisting engagements of the union and to maintain those establishments which for some time to come would suffice in time of peace but would it be wise 
or would it not rather be the extreme of folly to stop at this point and to leave the government entrusted with the care of the national defence in a state of absolute incapacity to provide for the protection of the community against future invasions of the public peace by foreign war or domestic convulsions if on the contrary we ought to exceed this point where can we stop short of an indefinite power of providing for emergencies as they may arise though it is easy to assert in general terms the possibility of forming a rational judgment of a due provision against probable dangers yet we may safely challenge those who make the assertion to bring forward their data and may affirm that they would be found as vague and uncertain as any that could be produced to establish the probable duration of the world observations confined to the mere prospects of internal attacks can deserve no weight though even these will admit of no satisfactory calculation but if we mean to be a commercial people it must form a part of our policy to be able one day to defend that commerce the support of a navy and of naval wars would involve contingencies that must baffle all the efforts of political arithmetic admitting that we ought to try the novel and absurd experiment in politics of tying up the hands of government from offensive war founded upon reasons of state yet certainly we ought not to disable it from guarding the community against the ambition or enmity of other nations a cloud has been for some time hanging over the European world. If it should break forth into a storm, who can ensure us that in its progress a part of its fury would not be spent upon us? No reasonable man would hastily pronounce that we are entirely out of its reach. Or, if the combustible materials that now seem to be collecting should be dissipated without coming to maturity, or if a flame should be kindled without extending to us what security can we have that our tranquillity will long remain undisturbed from some other cause or from some other quarter let us recollect that peace or war will not always be left to our option that however moderate or unambitious that we may be we cannot count upon the moderation or hope to extinguish the ambition of others who could have imagined at the conclusion of the last war that France and Britain, wearied and exhausted as they both were, would so soon have looked with so hostile an aspect upon each other? To judge from the history of mankind, we should be compelled to conclude that the fiery and destructive passions of war reign in the human breast with much more powerful sway than the mild and beneficent sentiments of peace, and that to model our political systems upon speculations of lasting tranquillity is to calculate on the weaker springs of the human character what are the chief sources of expense in every government what has occasioned that enormous accumulation of debts with which several of the european nations are oppressed the answers plainly is wars and rebellions the support of those institutions which are necessary to guard the body politic against these two most mortal diseases of society the expenses arising from those institutions which are relative to the mere domestic police of a state 
to the support of its legislative, executive, and judicial departments, with their different appendages, and to the encouragement of agriculture and manufacturers, which will comprehend almost all the objects of state expenditure, are insignificant in comparison with those which relate to the national defence. In the kingdom of Great Britain, where all the ostentatious apparatus of monarchy is to be provided for, not above a fifteenth part of the annual income of the nation is appropriated to the class of expenses last mentioned. The other fourteen fifteenths are absorbed in the payment of the interest of debts contracted for carrying on the wars in which that country has been engaged, and in the maintenance of fleets and armies. If, on the one hand, it should be observed that the expenses incurred in the prosecution of the ambitious enterprises and vainglorious pursuits of a monarchy are not a proper standard by which to judge of those which might be necessary in a republic, it ought, on the other hand, to be remarked that there should be as great a disproportion between the profusion and extravagance of a wealthy kingdom in its domestic administration and the frugality and economy which in that particular become the modest simplicity of republican government. If we balance a proper deduction from one side against that which it is supposed ought to be made from the other, the proportion may still be considered as holding good. But let us advert to the large debt which we have ourselves contracted in a single war, and let us only calculate on a common share of the events which disturb the peace of nations, and we shall instantly perceive, without the aid of any elaborate illustration, that there must always be an immense disproportion between the objects of federal and state expenditures. It is true that several of the states, separately, are encumbered with considerable debts, which are an excrescence of the late war." but this cannot happen again, if the proposed system be adopted, and when these debts are discharged, the only call for revenue of any consequence which the state governments will continue to experience will be for the mere support of their respective civil list, to which, if we add all contingencies, the total amount in every state ought to fall considerably short of two hundred thousand pounds." In framing a government for posterity, as well as ourselves, we ought, in those provisions which are designed to be permanent, to calculate not on temporary, but on permanent causes of expense. If this principle be a just one, our attention would be directed to a provision in favour of the state governments for an annual sum of about two hundred thousand pounds, while the exigencies of the Union could be susceptible of no limits, even in imagination. In this view of the subject, by what logic can it be maintained that the local governments ought to command, in perpetuity, an exclusive source of revenue for any sum beyond the extent of two hundred thousand pounds? To extend its power further, an exclusion of the authority of the Union— would be to take the resources of the community out of those hands which stood in need of them for the public welfare, in order to put them into other hands which could have no just or proper occasion for them. Suppose, then, 
that the convention had been inclined to proceed upon the principle of a repartition of the objects of revenue between the union and its members in proportion to their comparative necessities what particular fund could have been selected for the use of the states that would not either have been too much or too little for their present too much for their future wants as to the line of separation between external and internal taxes this would leave to the states at a rough computation the command of two-thirds of the resources of the community to defray from a tenth to a twentieth part of its expenses and to the union one-third of the resources of the community to defray from nine-tenths to nineteen-twentieths of its expenses if we desert this boundary and content ourselves with leaving to the states an exclusive power of taxing houses and lands there would still be a great disproportion between the means and the end the possession of one-third of the resources of the community to supply at most one-tenth of its wants if any fund could have been selected and appropriated equal to and not greater than the object it would have been inadequate to the discharge of the existing debts of the particular states and would have left them dependent on the union for a provision for this purpose the preceding train of observation will justify the position which has been elsewhere laid down that a concurrent jurisdiction in the article of taxation was the only admissible substitute for an entire subordination in respect to this branch of power of state authority to that of the union any separation of the objects of revenue that could have been fallen upon would have amounted to a sacrifice of the great interests of the union to the power of the individual states the convention thought the concurrent jurisdiction preferable to that of subordination and it is evident that it has at least the merit of reconciling an indefinite constitutional power of taxation in the federal government with an adequate and independent power in the states to provide for their own necessities there remain a few other lights in which this important subject of taxation will claim a further consideration signed publius end of federalist number thirty four Federalist number thirty five of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist number thirty five. The same subject continued concerning the general power of taxation for the independent journal saturday january fifth seventeen eighty eight hamilton to the people of the state of new york before we proceed to examine any other objections to an indefinite power of taxation in the union i shall make one general remark which is that if the jurisdiction of the national government in the article of revenue should be restricted to particular objects it would naturally occasion an undue proportion of the public burdens to fall upon those objects 
two evils would spring from this source, the oppression of particular branches of industry, and an unequal distribution of the taxes, as well among the several states as among the citizens of the same state. Suppose, as has been contended for, the federal power of taxation were to be confined to duties on imports, it is evident that the government, for want of being able to command other resources, would frequently be tempted to extend these duties to an injurious excess. There are persons who imagine that they can never be carried to too great a length, since the higher they are, the more it is alleged they will tend to discourage an extravagant consumption, to produce a favourable balance of trade, and to promote domestic manufactures. But all extremes are pernicious in various ways. Exorbitant duties on imported articles would beget a general spirit of smuggling, which is always prejudicial to the fair trader, and eventually to the revenue itself. They tend to render other classes of the community tributary, in an improper degree, to the manufacturing classes, to whom they give a premature monopoly of the markets. They sometimes force industry out of its more natural channels into others in which it flows with less advantage, and in the last place they oppress the merchant, who is often obliged to pay them himself without any retribution from the consumer. When the demand is equal to the quantity of goods at market, the consumer generally pays the duty, but when the markets happen to be overstocked, a great proportion falls upon the merchant and sometimes not only exhausts his profits, but breaks in upon his capital. I am apt to think that a division of the duty, between the seller and the buyer, more often happens than is commonly imagined. It is not always possible to raise the price of a commodity in exact proportion to every additional imposition laid upon it. The merchant, especially in a country of small commercial capital, is often under a necessity of keeping prices down in order to a more expeditious sale. The maxim that the consumer is the payer is so much oftener true than the reverse of the proposition that it is far more equitable that the duties on imports should go into a common stock than that they should redound to the exclusive benefit of the importing states but it is not so generally true as to render it equitable that those duties should form the only national fund. When they are paid by the merchant, they operate as an additional tax upon the importing state, whose citizens pay their proportion of them in the character of consumers. In this view, they are productive of inequality among the states, which inequality would be increased with the increased extent of the duties. The confinement of the national revenues to this species of imposts would be attended with inequality, from a different cause, between the manufacturing and the non-manufacturing states. The states which can go farthest towards the supply of their own wants by their own manufacturers will not, according to their numbers or wealth, consume so great a proportion of imported articles as those states which are not in the same favourable situation. They would not, therefore, in this mode alone contribute to the public treasury in a ratio to their abilities. To make them do this it is necessary that recourse be had to excises, 
the proper objects of which are particular kinds of manufactures. New York is more deeply interested in these considerations than such of her citizens as contend for limiting the power of the Union to external taxation may be aware of. New York is an importing state, and is not likely speedily to be, to any great extent, a manufacturing state. She would, of course, suffer in a double light from restraining the jurisdiction of the Union to commercial imposts. So far as these observations tend to inculcate a danger of the import duties being extended to an injurious extreme, it may be observed, conformably to a remark made in another part of these papers, that the interest of the revenue itself would be a sufficient guard against such an extreme. I readily admit that this would be the case, as long as other resources were open. But if the avenues to them were closed, hope, stimulated by necessity, would beget experiments, fortified by rigorous precautions and additional penalties, which, for a time, would have the intended effect, till there had been leisure to contrive expedients to elude these new precautions. The first success would be apt to inspire false opinions, which it might require a long course of subsequent experience to correct. Necessity, especially in politics, often occasions false hopes, false reasonings, and a system of measures correspondingly erroneous. But even if this supposed excess should not be a consequence of the limitation of the federal power of taxation, the inequality spoken of would still ensue, though not in the same degree, from the other causes that have been noticed. Let us now return to the examination of objections. One which, if we may judge from the frequency of its repetition, seems most to be relied on, is that the House of Representatives is not sufficiently numerous for the reception of all the different classes of citizens, in order to combine the interests and feelings of every part of the community, and to produce a due sympathy between the representative body and its constituents. This argument presents itself under a very specious and seducing form, and is well calculated to lay hold of the prejudices of those to whom it is addressed. But when we come to dissect it with attention, it will appear to be made up of nothing but fair-sounding words. The object it seems to aim at is, in the first place, impracticable, and in the sense in which it is contended for, is unnecessary. I reserve for another place the discussion of the question which relates to the sufficiency of the representative body in respect to numbers, and shall content myself with examining here the particular use which has been made of a contrary supposition in reference to the immediate subject of our inquiries. The idea of an actual representation of all classes of the people, by persons of each class, is altogether visionary. Unless it were expressly provided in the Constitution that each different occupation should send one or more members, the thing would never take place in practice. Mechanics and manufacturers will always be inclined, with few exceptions, to give their votes to merchants, in preference to persons of their own professions or trades. Those discerning citizens are well aware that the mechanic and manufacturing arts 
furnished the materials of mercantile enterprise and industry. Many of them, indeed, are immediately connected with the operations of commerce. They know that the merchant is their natural patron and friend, and they are aware that however great the confidence they may justly feel in their own good sense, their interests can be more effectually promoted by the merchant than by themselves. They are sensible that their habits in life have not been such as to give them those acquired endowments, without which, in a deliberative assembly, the greatest natural abilities are for the most part useless, and that the influence and weight, and superior acquirements of the merchants, rendered them more equal to a contest with any spirit which might happen to infuse itself into the public councils, unfriendly to the manufacturing and trading interests. These considerations, and many others that might be mentioned, prove, and experience confirms it, that artisans and manufacturers will commonly be disposed to bestow their votes upon merchants and those whom they recommend. We must therefore consider merchants as the natural representatives of all these classes of the community. With regard to the learned professions, little need be observed. They truly form no distinct interest in society, and according to their situation and talents, will be indiscriminately the objects of the confidence and choice of each other, and of other parts of the community. Nothing remains but the landed interest, and this, in a political view, and particularly in relation to taxes, I take to be perfectly united, from the wealthiest landlord down to the poorest tenant. No tax can be laid on land which will not affect the proprietor of millions of acres as well as the proprietor of a single acre. Every landholder will therefore have a common interest to keep the taxes on land as low as possible, and common interest may always be reckoned upon as the surest bond of sympathy. But if we even could suppose a distinction of interest between the opulent landholder and the middling farmer, what reason is there to conclude that the first would stand a better chance of being deputed to the national legislature than the last? If we take fact as our guide, and look into our own Senate and Assembly, we shall find that moderate proprietors of land prevail in both. Nor is this less the case in the Senate, which consists of a smaller number, than in the Assembly, which is composed of a greater number. Where the qualifications of the electors are the same, whether they have to choose a small or a large number, their votes will fall upon those in whom they have most confidence, whether these happen to be men of large fortunes, or of moderate property, or of no property at all. It is said to be necessary that all classes of citizens should have some of their own number in the representative body, in order that their feelings and interests may be the better understood and attended to. But we have seen that this will never happen under any arrangement that leaves the votes of the people free. Where this is the case, the representative body, with too few exceptions to have any influence on the spirit of the government, will be composed of landholders, merchants, and men of the learned professions. But where is the danger that the interests and feelings of the different classes of citizens 
will not be understood or attended to by these three descriptions of men. Will not the landholder know and feel whatever will promote or ensure the interest of landed property? And will he not, from his own interest in that species of property, be sufficiently prone to resist every attempt to prejudice or encumber it? Will not the merchant understand and be disposed to cultivate, as far as may be proper, the interests of the mechanic and manufacturing arts, to which his commerce is so nearly allied? Will not the man of the learned profession, who will feel a neutrality to the rivalships between the different branches of industry, be likely to prove an impartial arbiter between them, ready to promote either, so far as it shall appear to him conducive to the general interests of the society. If we take into the account the momentary humours or dispositions which may happen to prevail in particular parts of the society, and to which a wise administration will never be inattentive, is the man whose situation leads to extensive inquiry and information less likely to be a competent judge of their nature, extent, and foundation, than one whose observation does not travel beyond the circle of his neighbors and acquaintances? Is it not natural that a man who is a candidate for the favor of the people, and who is dependent on the suffrages of his fellow-citizens for the continuance of his public honors, should take care to inform himself of their dispositions and inclinations, and should be willing to allow them their proper degree of influence upon his conduct. This dependence, and the necessity of being bound himself, and his posterity, by the laws to which he gives his assent, are the true, and they are the strong cords of sympathy between the representative and the constituent. There is no part of the administration of government that requires extensive information and a thorough knowledge of the principles of political economy, so much as the business of taxation. The man who understands these principles best will be least likely to resort to oppressive expedients, or sacrifice any particular class of citizens to the procurement of revenue. It might be demonstrated that the most productive system of finance will always be the least burdensome. There can be no doubt that in order to a judicious exercise of the power of taxation, it is necessary that the person in whose hands it should be acquainted with the general genius, habits, and modes of thinking of the people at large, and with the resources of the country. And this is all that can be reasonably meant by a knowledge of the interests and feelings of the people. In any other sense, the proposition has either no meaning or an absurd one. And in that sense, let every considerate citizen judge for himself where the requisite qualification is most likely to be found. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 35federalist number 36 of the federalist papers this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina the federalist papers by alexander hamilton john jay and james madison federalist number 36 
The same subject continued, concerning the general power of taxation. From the New York Packet, Tuesday, January 8, 1788. Hamilton. To the people of the State of New York. We have seen that the result of the observations, to which the foregoing number has been principally devoted, is that the natural operation of the different interests and views of the various classes of the community, whether the representation of the people be more or less numerous, it will consist almost entirely of proprietors of land, of merchants, and of members of the learned professions, who will truly represent all those different interests and views. If it should be objected that we have seen other descriptions of men in the local legislatures, I answer that it is admitted there are exceptions to the rule, but not in sufficient number to influence the general complexion or character of the government. There are strong minds in every walk of life that will rise superior to the disadvantages of situation, and will command the tribute due to their merit, not only from the classes to which they particularly belong, but from the society in general. The door ought to be equally open to all, and, I trust, for the credit of human nature, that we shall see examples of such vigorous plants flourishing in the soil of federal as well as of state legislation. But occasional instances of this sort will not render the reasoning founded upon the general course of things less conclusive. The subject might be placed in several other lights that would all lead to the same result, and in particular it might be asked, what greater affinity or relation of interest can be conceived between the carpenter and blacksmith and the linen manufacturer or stocking weaver than between the merchant and either of them? It is notorious that there are often as great rivalships between different branches of the mechanic or manufacturing arts as there are between any of the departments of labor and industry, so that, unless the representative body were to be far more numerous than would be consistent with any idea of regularity or wisdom in its deliberations, it is impossible that what seems to be the spirit of the objection we have been considering should ever be realized in practice. But I forbear to dwell any longer on a matter which has hitherto worn too loose a garb to admit even of an accurate inspection of its real shape or tendency. There is another objection of a somewhat more precise nature that claims our attention. It has been asserted that a power of internal taxation in the national legislature could never be exercised with advantage, as well from the want of a sufficient knowledge of local circumstances as from an interference between the revenue laws of the Union and of the particular states. The supposition of a want of proper knowledge seems to be entirely destitute of foundation. If any question is depending in a state legislature respecting one of the counties, which demands the knowledge of local details, how is it acquired? No doubt from the information of the members of the county. Cannot the like knowledge be obtained in the national legislature from the representatives of each state? And is it not to be presumed that the men who will generally be sent there will be possessed of the necessary degree of intelligence to be able to communicate that information? In the knowledge of local circumstances, as applied to taxation, 
a minute topographical acquaintance with all the mountains, rivers, streams, highways, and bypaths in each state? Or is it a general acquaintance with its situation and resources, with the state of its agriculture, commerce, manufactures, with the nature of its products and consumptions, with the different degrees and kinds of its wealth, property, and industry? Nations in general, even under governments of the more popular kind, usually commit the administration of their finances to single men or to boards composed of a few individuals, who digest and prepare, in the first instance, the plans of taxation, which are afterwards passed into laws by the authority of the sovereign or legislature. Inquisitive and enlightened statesmen are deemed everywhere best qualified to make a judicious selection of the objects proper for revenue, which is a clear indication, as far as the sense of mankind can have weight in the question, of the species of knowledge of local circumstances requisite to the purposes of taxation. The taxes intended to be comprised under the general denomination of internal taxes may be subdivided into those of the direct and those of the indirect kind. Though the objection be made to both, yet the reasoning upon it seems to be confined to the former branch. And indeed, as to the latter, by which must be understood duties and excises on articles of consumption, one is at a loss to conceive what can be the nature of the difficulties apprehended. The knowledge relating to them must evidently be of a kind that will either be suggested by the nature of the article itself, or can easily be procured from any well-informed man, especially of the mercantile class. The circumstances that may distinguish its situation in one state from its situation in another must be few, simple, and easy to be comprehended. The principal thing to be attended to would be to avoid those articles which had been previously appropriated to the use of a particular state, and there could be no difficulty in ascertaining the revenue system of each. This could always be known from the respective codes of laws, as well as from the information of the members from the several states. The objection, when applied to real property or to houses and lands, appears to have, at first sight, more foundation, but even in this view it will not bear a close examination. Land taxes are commonly laid in one of two modes, either by actual valuations, permanent or periodical, or by occasional assessments, at the discretion, or according to the best judgment, of certain officers whose duty it is to make them. In either case, the execution of the business, which alone requires the knowledge of local details, must be devolved upon discreet persons in the character of commissioners or assessors, elected by the people or appointed by the government for the purpose. All that the law can do must be to name the persons or to prescribe the manner of their election or appointment, to fix their numbers and qualifications, and to draw the general outlines of their powers and duties. And what is there in all this that cannot as well be performed by the national legislature as by a state legislature? The attention of either can only reach to general principles, 
local details, as already observed, must be referred to those who are to execute the plan. But there is a simple point of view in which this matter may be placed that must be altogether satisfactory. The National Legislature can make use of this system of each state within that state. The method of laying and collecting the species of taxes in each state can, in all its parts, be adopted and employed by the federal government. Let it be recollected that the proportion of these taxes is not to be left to the discretion of the National Legislature, but is to be determined by the numbers of each state, as described in the second section of the first article. An actual census, or enumeration of the people, must furnish the rule, a circumstance which effectually shuts the door to partiality or oppression. The abuse of this power of taxation seems to have been provided against with guarded circumspection. In addition to the precaution just mentioned, there is a provision that all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. It has been very properly observed by different speakers and writers on the side of the Constitution that if the exercise of the power of internal taxation by the Union should be discovered on experiment to be really inconvenient, the federal government may then forbear the use of it and have recourse to requisitions in its stead. By way of answer to this, it has been triumphantly asked, why not in the first instance omit that ambiguous power and rely upon the latter resource? Two solid answers may be given. The first is that the exercise of that power, if convenient, will be preferable, because it will be more effectual, and it is impossible to prove in theory or otherwise than by the experiment that it cannot be advantageously exercised. The contrary, indeed, appears most probable. The second answer is that the existence of such a power in the Constitution will have a strong influence in giving efficacy to requisitions. When the states know that the Union can apply itself without their agency, it will be a powerful motive for exertion on their part. As to the interference of the revenue laws of the Union and of its members, we have already seen that there can be no clashing or repugnancy of authority. The laws cannot, therefore, in a legal sense, interfere with each other, and it is far from impossible to avoid an interference even in the policy of their different systems. An effectual expedient for this purpose will be, mutually, to abstain from those objects which either side may have first had recourse to. As neither can control the other, each will have an obvious and sensible interest in this reciprocal forbearance. And where there is an immediate common interest, we may safely count upon its operation. When the particular debts of the states are done away, and their expenses come to be limited within their national compass, the possibility almost of interference will vanish. A small land tax will answer the purpose of the states, and will be their most simple and most fit resource. Many specters have been raised out of this power of internal taxation to excite the apprehensions of the people. Double sets of revenue officers, 
a duplication of their burdens by double taxations, and the frightful forms of odious and oppressive poll taxes have been played off with all the ingenious dexterity of political ledger domain. As to the first point, there are two cases in which there can be no room for double sets of officers. One, where the right of imposing the tax is exclusively vested in the Union, which applies to the duties on imports, the other, where the object has not fallen under any state regulation or provision, which may be applicable to a variety of objects. In other cases, the probability is that the United States will either wholly abstain from the objects preoccupied for local purposes, or will make use of the state officers and state regulations for collecting the additional imposition. This will best answer the views of revenue, because it will save expense in the collection, and will best avoid any occasion of disgust to the state governments and to the people. At all events, here is a practicable expedient for avoiding such an inconvenience, and nothing more can be required than to show that evils predicted to not necessarily result from the plan. As to any argument derived from a supposed system of influence, it is a sufficient answer to say that it ought not to be presumed, but the supposition is susceptible of a more precise answer. If such a spirit should infest the councils of the Union, the most certain road to the accomplishment of its aim would be to employ the state officers as much as possible, and to attach them to the Union by an accumulation of their emoluments. This would serve to turn the tide of state influence into the channels of the national government, instead of making federal influence flow in an opposite and adverse current. But all suppositions of this kind are invidious, and ought to be banished from the consideration of the great question before the people. They can answer no other end than to cast a mist over the truth." As to the suggestion of double taxation, the answer is plain. The wants of the Union are to be supplied in one way or another. If to be done by the authority of the federal government, it will not be to be done by that of the state government. The quantity of taxes to be paid by the community must be the same in either case. With this advantage, if the provision is to be made by the Union that the capital resource of commercial imposts which is the most convenient branch of revenue, can be prudently improved to a much greater extent under federal than under state regulation, and of course will render it less necessary to recur to more inconvenient methods. And with this further advantage, that as far as there may be any real difficulty in the exercise of the power of internal taxation, it will impose a disposition to greater care in the choice an arrangement of the means, and must naturally tend to make it a fixed point of policy in the national administration to go as far as may be practicable in making the luxury of the rich tributary to the public treasury, in order to diminish the necessity of those impositions which might create dissatisfaction in the poorer and more numerous classes of the society." Happy it is when the interest which the government has in the preservation of its own power coincides with a proper distribution of the public burdens, and tends to guard the least wealthy part of the community from oppression. 
As to poll taxes, I, without scruple, confess my disapprobation of them, and though they have prevailed from an early period in those states which have uniformly been the most tenacious of their rights, I should lament to see them introduced into practice under the national government. But does it follow, because there is a power to lay them, that they will actually be laid? Every state in the Union has power to impose taxes of this kind, and yet in several of them they are unknown in practice. Are the state governments to be stigmatized as tyrannies because they possess this power? If they are not, with what propriety can the like power justify such a charge against the national government, or even be urged as an obstacle to its adoption? As little friendly as I am to the species of imposition, I still feel a thorough conviction that the power of having recourse to it ought to exist in the federal government. There are certain emergencies of nations in which expedients, that in the ordinary state of things ought to be forborne, become essential to the public weal. And the government, from the possibility of such emergencies, ought ever to have the option of making use of them. The real scarcity of objects in this country, which may be considered as productive sources of revenue, is a reason peculiar to itself, for not abridging the discretion of the national councils in this respect. There may exist certain critical and tempestuous conjunctures of the state in which a poll tax may become an inestimable resource. And as I know nothing to exempt this portion of the globe from the common calamities that have befallen other parts of it, I acknowledge my aversion to every project that is calculated to disarm the government of a single weapon, which in any possible contingency might be usefully employed for the general defence and security. I have now gone through the examination of such of the powers proposed to be vested in the United States, which may be considered as having an immediate relation to the energy of the government, and have endeavoured to answer the principal objections which have been made to them. I have passed over in silence those minor authorities which are either too inconsiderable to have been thought worthy of the hostilities of the opponents of the Constitution, or of too manifest propriety to admit of controversy. The mass of judiciary power, however, might have claimed an investigation under this head, had it not been for the consideration that its organization and its extent may be more advantageously considered in connection. This has determined me to refer it to the branch of our inquiries upon which we shall next enter. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 36《Federalist No. 37 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist No. 37. 
concerning the difficulties of the convention in devising a proper form of government. From the Daily Advertiser, Friday, January 11th, 1788, Madison, to the people of the State of New York. In reviewing the defects of the existing Confederation, and showing that they cannot be supplied by a government of less energy than that before the public, several of the most important principles of the latter fell of course under consideration. But as the ultimate object of these papers is to determine clearly and fully the merits of this Constitution, and the expediency of adopting it, our plan cannot be complete without taking a more critical and thorough survey of the work of the Convention, without examining it on all sides, comparing it in all its parts, and calculating its probable effects. That this remaining task may be executed under impressions conducive to a just and fair result, some reflections must in this place be indulged, which Candor previously suggests. It is a misfortune, inseparable from human affairs, that public measures are rarely investigated with that spirit of moderation which is essential to a just estimate of their real tendency to advance or obstruct the public good, and that this spirit is more apt to be diminished than promoted by those occasions which require an unusual exercise of it. To those who have been led by experience to attend to this consideration, it could not appear surprising that the act of the Convention, which recommends so many important changes and innovations, which may be viewed in so many lights and relations, and which touches the springs of so many passions and interests, should find or excite dispositions unfriendly, both on one side and on the other, to a fair discussion and accurate judgment of its merits. In some it has been too evident from their own publications that they have scanned the proposed Constitution not only with a predisposition to censure, but with a predetermination to condemn, as the language held by others betrays an opposite predetermination or bias, which must render their opinions also of little moment in the question. In placing, however, these different characters on a level, with respect to the weight of their opinions, I wish not to insinuate that there may not be a material difference in the purity of their intentions. It is but just to remark in favour of the latter description, that as our situation is universally admitted to be peculiarly critical, and to require indispensably that something should be done for our relief, the predetermined patron of what has been actually done may have taken his bias from the weight of these considerations, as well as from considerations of a sinister nature. The predetermined adversary, on the other hand, can have been governed by no venial motive whatever. The intentions of the first may be upright, as they may on the contrary be culpable. The views of the last cannot be upright, and must be culpable. But the truth is, that these papers are not addressed to persons falling under either of these characters. They solicit the attention of those only, who add to a sincere zeal for the happiness of their country, 
a temper favourable to a just estimate of the means of promoting it. Persons of this character will proceed to an examination of the plan submitted by the Convention, not only without a disposition to find or to magnify faults, but will see the propriety of reflecting that a faultless plan was not to be expected, nor will they barely make allowances for the errors which may be chargeable on the fallibility to which the Convention, as a body of men, were liable, but will keep in mind that they themselves also are but men, and ought not to assume an infallibility in rejudging the fallible opinions of others. With equal readiness will it be perceived that besides these inducements to candour, many allowances ought to be made for the difficulties inherent in the very nature of the undertaking referred to the Convention. The novelty of the undertaking immediately strikes us. It has been shown in the course of these papers that the existing Confederation is founded on principles which are fallacious that we must consequently change this first foundation, and with it the superstructures resting upon it. It has been shown that the other confederacies which could be consulted as precedents have been vitiated by the same erroneous principles, and can therefore furnish no other light than that of beacons, which give warning of the course to be shunned, without pointing out that which ought to be pursued." The most that the Convention could do in such a situation was to avoid the errors suggested by the past experience of other countries, as well as of our own, and to provide a convenient mode of rectifying their own errors, as future experiences may unfold them. Among the difficulties encountered by the Convention, a very important one must have lain in combining the requisite stability and energy in government, with the inviolable attention due to liberty and to the republican form. Without substantially accomplishing this part of their undertaking, they would have very imperfectly fulfilled the object of their appointment, or the expectation of the public, yet that it could not be easily accomplished will be denied by no one who is unwilling to betray his ignorance of the subject. Energy in government is essential to that security against external and internal danger, and to that prompt and salutary execution of the laws which enter into the very definition of good government. Stability in government is essential to national character and to the advantages annexed to it, as well as to that repose and confidence in the minds of the people, which are among the chief blessings of civil society. An irregular and mutable legislation is not more an evil in itself than it is odious to the people, and it may be pronounced with assurance that the people of this country, enlightened as they are with regard to the nature, and interested, as the great body of them are, in the effects of good government, will never be satisfied till some remedy be applied to the vicissitudes and uncertainties which characterize the state administrations. On comparing, however, these valuable ingredients with the vital principles of liberty, we must perceive at once 
the difficulty of mingling them together in their due proportions. The genius of republican liberty seems to demand on one side not only that all power should be derived from the people, but that those entrusted with it should be kept in independence on the people by a short duration of their appointments, and that even during this short period the trust should be placed not in a few, but a number of hands. Stability, on the contrary, requires that the hands in which power is lodged should continue for a length of time the same. A frequent change of men will result from a frequent return of elections, and a frequent change of measures from a frequent change of men, whilst energy in government requires not only a certain duration of power, but the execution of it by a single hand. How far the Convention may have succeeded in this part of their work will better appear on a more accurate view of it. From the cursory view here taken, it must clearly appear to have been an arduous part. Not less arduous must have been the task of marking the proper line of partition between the authority of the general and that of the state governments. Every man will be sensible of this difficulty, in proportion as he has been accustomed to contemplate and discriminate objects extensive and complicated in their nature. The faculties of the mind itself have never yet been distinguished and defined, with satisfactory precision, by all the efforts of the most acute and metaphysical philosophers. Sense, perception, judgment, desire, volition, memory, imagination, are found to be separated by such delicate shades and minute graduations that their boundaries have eluded the most subtle investigations, and remain a pregnant source of ingenious disquisition and controversy. The boundaries between the great kingdom of nature, and, still more, between the various provinces and lesser portions into which they are subdivided, afford another illustration of the same important truth. The most sagacious and laborious naturalists have never yet succeeded in tracing with certainty the line which separates the district of vegetable life from the neighboring region of unorganized matter, or which marks the termination of the former and the commencement of the animal empire. A still greater obscurity lies in the distinctive characters by which the objects in each of these great departments of nature have been arranged and assorted. When we pass from the works of nature, in which all the delineations are perfectly accurate, and appear to be otherwise only from the imperfection of the eye which surveys them, to the institutions of man, in which the obscurity arises as well from the object itself as from the organ by which it is contemplated, we must perceive the necessity of moderating still further our expectations and hopes from the efforts of human sagacity. Experience has instructed us that no skill in the science of government has yet been able to discriminate and define, with sufficient certainty, its three great provinces, the legislative, executive, and judiciary, or even the privileges and powers of the different legislative branches. 
questions daily occur in the course of practice which prove the obscurity which reigns in these subjects and which puzzle the greatest adepts in political science the experience of ages with the continued and combined labors of the most enlightened legislatures and jurists has been equally unsuccessful in delineating the several objects and limits of different codes of laws and different tribunals of justice the precise extent of the common law and the statute law the maritime law the ecclesiastical law the law of corporations and other local laws and customs remain still to be clearly and finally established in great britain where accuracy in such subjects has been more industriously pursued than in any other part of the world the jurisdiction of her several courts general and local of law of equity of admiralty etc is not less a source of frequent and intricate discussions sufficiently denoting the indeterminate limits by which they are respectively circumscribed all new laws though penned with the greatest technical skill and passed on the fullest and most mature deliberation are considered as more or less obscure and equivocal until their meeting be liquidated and ascertained by a series of particular discussions and adjudications besides the obscurity arising from the complexity of objects and the imperfection of the human faculties the medium through which the conceptions of men are conveyed to each other adds a fresh embarrassment the use of words is to express ideas perspicuity therefore requires not only that the ideas should be distinctly formed but that they should be expressed by words distinctly and exclusively appropriate to them but no language is so copious as to supply words and phrases for every complex idea or so correct as not to include many equivocally denoting different ideas hence it must happen that however accurately objects may be discriminated in themselves and however accurately the discrimination may be considered the definition of them may be rendered inaccurate by the inaccuracy of the terms in which it is delivered and this unavoidable inaccuracy must be greater or less according to the complexity and novelty of the subjects defined when the almighty himself condescends to address mankind in their own language his meaning luminous as it must be is rendered dim and doubtful by the cloudy medium through which it is communicated here then are three sources of vague and incorrect definitions indistinctness of the object imperfection of the organ of conception inadequateness of the vehicle of ideas any one of these must produce a certain degree of obscurity the convention in delineating the boundary between the federal and state jurisdictions must have experienced the full effect of them all to the difficulties already mentioned may be added the interfering pretensions of the larger and smaller states we cannot err in supposing that the former would contend for a participation in the government fully proportioned to their superior wealth and importance 
and that the latter would not be less tenacious of the equality at present enjoyed by them. We may well suppose that neither side would entirely yield to the other, and consequently that the struggle could be terminated only by compromise. It is extremely probable, also, that after the ratio of representation had been adjusted, this very compromise must have produced a fresh struggle between the same parties, to give such a turn to the organization of the government, and to the distribution of its powers, as would increase the importance of the branches, in forming which they had respectively obtained the greatest share of influence. There are features in the Constitution which warrant each of these suppositions, and as far as either of them is well founded, it shows that the Convention must have been compelled to sacrifice theoretical propriety to the force of extraneous considerations. Nor could it have been the large and small states only, which would marshal themselves in opposition to each other on various points. Other combinations, resulting from a difference of local position and policy, must have created additional difficulties. As every state may be divided into different districts, and its citizens into different classes, which give birth to contending interests and local jealousies, so the different parts of the United States are distinguished from each other by a variety of circumstances, which produce a like effect on a larger scale. And although this variety of interests, for reasons sufficiently explained in a former paper, may have a salutary influence on the administration of the government when formed, yet every one must be sensible of the contrary influence which must have been experienced in the task of forming it. Would it be wonderful if, under the pressure of all these difficulties, the Convention should have been forced into some deviations from that artificial structure and regular symmetry which an abstract view of the subject might lead an ingenious theorist to bestow on a constitution planned in his closet or in his imagination. The real wonder is that so many difficulties should have been surmounted, and surmounted with a unanimity almost as unprecedented as it must have been unexpected. It is impossible for any man of candor to reflect on this circumstance without partaking of the astonishment. It is impossible for the man of pious reflection not to perceive in it a finger of that almighty hand which has been so frequently and signally extended to our relief in the critical stages of the revolution. We had occasion, in a former paper, to take notice of the repeated trials which have been unsuccessfully made in the United Netherlands, for reforming the baneful and notorious vices of their constitution. The history of almost all the great councils and consultations held among mankind, for reconciling their discordant opinions, assuaging their mutual jealousies, and adjusting their respective interests, is a history of factions, contentions, and disappointments, and may be classed among the most dark and degraded pictures which display the infirmities and depravities of the human character. 
if, in a few scattered instances, a brighter aspect is presented, may serve only as exceptions to admonish us of the general truth, and by their lustre to darken the gloom of the adverse prospect to which they are contrasted. In revolving the causes from which these exceptions result, and applying them to the particular instances before us, we are necessarily led to two important conclusions. The first is, that the Convention must have enjoyed, in a very singular degree, an exemption from the pestilential influence of party animosities, the disease most incident to deliberative bodies, and most apt to contaminate their proceedings. The second conclusion is, that all the deputations composing the Convention were satisfactorily accommodated by the final act, or were induced to accede to it by a deep conviction of the necessity of sacrificing private opinions and partial interests to the public good, and by a despair of seeing this necessity diminished by delays or by new experiments. Signed Publius End of Federalist Number 37federalist number 38 of the federalist papers this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina the federalist papers by alexander hamilton john jay and james madison federalist number 38 the same subject continued, and the incoherence of the objections to the new plan exposed. From the Independent Journal, Saturday, January 12, 1788. Madison. To the people of the State of New York. It is not a little remarkable that in every case reported by ancient history, in which government has been established with deliberation and consent, the task of framing it has not been committed to an assembly of men, but has been performed by some individual citizen of pre-eminent wisdom and approved integrity. Minos, we learn, was the primitive founder of the government of Crete, as Zeleucus was of that of the Locrians. Theseus first, and after him Draco and Solon, instituted the government of Athens. Lycurgus was the lawgiver of Sparta. The foundation of the original government of Rome was laid by Romulus, and the work completed by two of his elective successors, Numa and Tullius Hostilius. On the abolition of royalty, the consular administration was substituted by Brutus, who stepped forward with a project for such reform, which, he alleged, had been prepared by Tullius Hostilius, and to which his address obtained the assent and ratification of the Senate and people. This remark is applicable to confederate governments also. Amphictyon, we are told, was the author of that which bore his name. The Achaean League received its first birth from Achaeus, and its second from Aratus. What degree of agency these reputed lawgivers might have in their respective establishments, or how far they might be clothed with the legitimate authority of the people, cannot in every instance 
be ascertained. In some, however, the preceding was strictly regular. Draco appears to have been entrusted by the people of Athens with indefinite powers to reform its government and laws. And Solon, according to Plutarch, was in a manner compelled, by the universal suffrage of his fellow-citizens, to take upon him the sole and absolute power of new-modelling the Constitution. The proceedings under Lycurgus were less regular, but as far as the advocates for a regular reform could prevail, they all turned their eyes towards the single efforts of that celebrated patriot and sage, instead of seeking to bring about a revolution by the intervention of a deliberative body of citizens. Whence could it have proceeded that a people, jealous as the Greeks were of their liberty, should so far abandon the rules of caution as to place their destiny in the hands of a single citizen? Whence could it have proceeded that the Athenians, a people who would not suffer an army to be commanded by fewer than ten generals, and who required no other proof of danger to their liberties than the illustrious merit of a fellow-citizen, should consider one illustrious citizen as a more eligible depository of the fortunes of themselves and their posterity than a select body of citizens, from whose common deliberations more wisdom, as well as more safety, might have been expected. These questions cannot be fully answered, without supposing that the fears of discord and disunion among a number of councillors exceeded the apprehension of treachery or incapacity in a single individual. History informs us, likewise, of the difficulties with which these celebrated reformers had to contend, as well as the expedients which they were obliged to employ in order to carry their reforms into effect. Solon, who seems to have indulged a more temporizing policy, confessed that he had not given to his countrymen the government best suited to their happiness, but most tolerable to their prejudices. And Lycurgus, more true to his object, was under the necessity of mixing a portion of violence with the authority of superstition, and of securing his final success by a voluntary renunciation, first of his country, and then of his life. If these lessons teach us, on one hand, to admire the improvement made by America on the ancient mode of preparing and establishing regular plans of government, they serve not less, on the other, to admonish us of the hazards and difficulties incident to such experiments, and of the great imprudence of unnecessarily multiplying them. Is it an unreasonable conjecture that the errors which may be contained in the plan of the Convention are such as have resulted rather from the defect of antecedent experience on this complicated and difficult subject than from a want of accuracy or care in the investigation of it, and consequently such as will not be ascertained until an actual trial shall have pointed them out? This conjecture is rendered probable, not only by many considerations of a general nature, but by the particular case of the Articles of Confederation. It is observable that among the numerous objections and amendments suggested by the several states, when these articles were submitted for their ratification, 
not one is found which alludes to the great and radical error which on actual trial has discovered itself. And if we accept the observations which New Jersey was led to make, rather by her local situation than by her peculiar foresight, it may be questioned whether a single suggestion was of sufficient moment to justify a revision of the system. There is abundant reason, nevertheless, to suppose that immaterial as these objections were, they would have been adhered to with a very dangerous inflexibility, in some states, had not a zeal for their opinions and supposed interests been stifled by the more powerful sentiment of self-preservation. One state, we may remember, persisted for several years in refusing her concurrence, although the enemy remained the whole period at our gates, or rather, in the very bowels of our country. Nor was her pliancy in the end effected by a less motive than the fear of being chargeable with protracting the public calamities and endangering the event of the contest. Every candid reader will make the proper reflections on these important facts. A patient who finds his disorder daily growing worse, and that an efficacious remedy can no longer be delayed without extreme danger, after coolly revolving his situation and the characters of different physicians, selects and calls in such of them as he judges most capable of administering relief and best entitled to his confidence. The physicians attend, the case of the patient is carefully examined, a consultation is held, they are unanimously agreed that the symptoms are critical, but that the case, with proper and timely relief, is so far from being desperate that it may be made to issue in an improvement of his constitution. They are equally unanimous in prescribing the remedy by which this happy effect is to be produced. The prescription is no sooner made known, however, than a number of persons interpose, and, without denying the reality or danger of the disorder, assure the patient that the prescription will be poison to his constitution, and forbid him, under pain of certain death, to make use of it. Might not the patient reasonably demand, before he ventured to follow this advice, that the authors of it should at least agree among themselves on some other remedy to be substituted? And if he found them differing as much from one another as from his first counsellors, would he not act prudently in trying the experiment unanimously recommended by the latter, rather than be hearkening to those who could neither deny the necessity of a speedy remedy, nor agree in proposing one? Such a patient, and in such a situation, is America at this moment. She has been sensible of her malady. She has obtained a regular and unanimous advice from men of her own deliberate choice. And she is warned by others against following this advice under pain of the most fatal consequences. Do the monitors deny the reality of her danger? No. Do they deny the necessity of some speedy and powerful remedy? No. Are they agreed? Are any two of them agreed, in their objections to the remedy proposed, or in the proper one to be substituted? 
let them speak for themselves. This one tells us that the proposed Constitution ought to be rejected, because it is not a confederation of the states, but a government over individuals. Another admits that it ought to be a government over individuals to a certain extent, but by no means to the extent proposed. A third does not object to the government over individuals, or to the extent proposed, but to the want of a bill of rights. A fourth concurs in the absolute necessity of a bill of rights, but contends that it ought to be declaratory, not of the personal rights of individuals, but of the rights reserved to the states in their political capacity. A fifth is of opinion that a bill of rights of any sort would be superfluous and misplaced, and that the plan would be unexceptionable but for the fatal power of regulating the times and places of election. An objector in a large state exclaims loudly against the unreasonable equality of representation in the Senate. An objector in a small state is equally loud against the dangerous inequality in the House of Representatives. From this quarter we are alarmed with the amazing expense from the number of persons who are to administer the new government. From another quarter, and sometimes from the same quarter, on another occasion, the cry is that the Congress will be but a shadow of a representation, and that the government would be far less objectionable if the number and the expense were doubled. <laughs> a patriot in a state that does not import or export discerns insuperable objections against the power of direct taxation. The patriotic adversary in a state of great exports and imports is not less dissatisfied that the whole burden of taxes may be thrown on consumption. This politician discovers in the Constitution a direct and irresistible tendency to monarchy that is equally sure it will end in aristocracy. Another is puzzled to say which of these shapes it will ultimately assume, but sees clearly it must be one or other of them, whilst a fourth is not wanting, who with less confidence affirms that the Constitution is so far from having a bias towards either of these dangers, that the weight on that side will not be sufficient to keep it upright and firm against its opposite propensities." With another class of adversaries to the Constitution, the language is that the legislative, executive, and judiciary departments are intermixed in such a manner as to contradict all the ideas of regular government and all the requisite precautions in favor of liberty. Whilst this objection circulates in vague and general expressions, there are but a few who lend their sanction to it. Let each one come forward with his particular explanation, and scarce any two are exactly agreed upon the subject. In the eyes of one, the junction of the Senate with the President in the responsible function of appointing to offices, instead of vesting this executive power in the executive alone, is the vicious part of the organization. To another, the exclusion of the House of Representatives— whose numbers alone could be a due security against corruption and partiality in the exercise of such a power, is equally obnoxious. 
with another the admission of the president into any share of a power which ever must be a dangerous engine in the hands of the executive magistrate is an unpardonable violation of the maxims of republican jealousy no part of the arrangement according to some is more inadmissible than the trial of impeachments by the senate which is alternately a member both of the legislative and executive departments when this power so evidently belonged to the judiciary department we concur fully reply others in the objection to this part of the plan but we can never agree that a reference of impeachments to the judiciary authority would be an amendment of the error our principal dislike to the organization arises from the extensive powers already lodged in that department even among the zealous patrons of a council of state the most irreconcilable variance is discovered concerning the mode in which it ought to be constituted the demand of one gentleman is that the council should consist of a small number to be appointed by the most numerous branch of the legislature another would prefer a larger number and considers it as a fundamental condition that the appointment should be made by the president himself as it can give no umbrage to the writers against the plan of the federal constitution let us suppose that as they are the most zealous so they are also the most sagacious of those who think the late convention were unequal to the task assigned to them and that a wiser and better plan might and ought to be substituted let us further suppose that their country should concur both in this favorable opinion of their merits and in their unfavorable opinion of the convention and should accordingly proceed to form them into a second convention with full powers and for the express purpose of revising and remoulding the work of the first were the experiment to be seriously made though it required some effort to view it seriously even in fiction i leave it to be decided by the sample of opinions just exhibited whether with all their enmity to their predecessors they would at any one point depart so widely from their example as in the discord and ferment that would mark their own deliberations and whether the constitution now before the public would not stand as fair a chance for immortality as lycurgus gave to that of sparta by making its change to depend on his own return from exile and death if it were to be immediately adopted and were to continue in force not until a better but until another should be agreed upon by this new assembly of lawgivers it is a matter both of wonder and regret that those who raise so many objections against the new constitution should never call to mind the defects of that which is to be exchanged for it it is not necessary that the former should be perfect it is sufficient that the latter is more imperfect no man would refuse to give brass for silver or gold because the latter had some alloy in it no man would refuse to quit a shattered and tottering habitation for a firm and commodious building because the latter had not a porch to it or because some of the rooms might be a little larger or smaller 
or the ceilings a little higher or lower than his fancy would have planned them. But waving illustrations of this sort, is it not manifest that most of the capital objections urged against the new system lie with tenfold weight against the existing confederation? Is an indefinite power to raise money dangerous in the hands of the federal government? The present Congress can make requisitions to any amount they please, and the states are constitutionally bound to furnish them. They can emit bills of credit as long as they will pay for the paper. They can borrow, both abroad and at home, as long as a shilling will be lent. Is an indefinite power to raise troops dangerous? The Confederation gives to Congress that power also, and they have already begun to make use of it. Is it improper and unsafe to intermix the different powers of government in the same body of men? Congress, a single body of men, are the sole depository of all the federal powers. Is it particularly dangerous to give the keys of the Treasury and the command of the Army into the same hands? The Confederation places them both in the hands of Congress. Is a Bill of Rights essential to liberty? The Confederation has no Bill of Rights. Isn't it objection against the new Constitution that it empowers the Senate, with the concurrence of the Executive, to make treaties which are to be the laws of the land? The existing Congress, without any such control, can make treaties which they themselves have declared, and most of the states have recognized, to be the supreme law of the land. Is the importation of slaves permitted by the new Constitution for twenty years? By the old it is permitted forever. I shall be told that however dangerous this mixture of powers may be in theory, it is rendered harmless by the dependence of Congress on the state for the means of carrying them into practice, that however large the mass of powers may be, it is in fact a lifeless mass. Then, say I, in the first place, that the Confederation is chargeable with the still greater folly of declaring certain powers in the federal government to be absolutely necessary, and at the same time rendering them absolutely nugatory. And, in the next place, that if the Union is to continue— and no better government be substituted, effective powers must either be granted to, or assumed by, the existing Congress, in either of which events the contrast just stated will hold good. But this is not all. Out of this lifeless mass has already grown an excrescent power, which tends to realize all the dangers that can be apprehended from a defective construction of the supreme government of the Union. It is now no longer a point of speculation and hope that the Western Territory is a mine of vast wealth to the United States, and although it is not of such a nature as to extricate them from their present distresses, or for some time to come, to yield any regular supplies for the public expenses, yet must it hereafter be able— under proper management, both to effect a gradual discharge of the domestic debt, and to furnish, for a certain period, liberal tributes to the federal treasury. 
a very large proportion of this fund has been already surrendered by individual states, and it may with reason be expected that the remaining states will not persist in withholding similar proofs of their equity and generosity. We may calculate, therefore, that a rich and fertile country, of an area equal to the inhabited extent of the United States, will soon become a national stock. Congress have assumed the administration of this stock. They have begun to render it productive. Congress have undertaken to do more. They have proceeded to form new states, to erect temporary governments, to appoint officers for them, and to prescribe the conditions on which such states may be admitted into the Confederacy. All this has been done, and done without the least color of constitutional authority. Yet no blame has been whispered, no alarm has been sounded. A great and independent fund of revenue is passing into the hands of a single body of men, who can raise troops to an indefinite number, and appropriate money to their support for an indefinite period of time. And yet there are men, who have not only been silent spectators of this prospect, but who are advocates for the system which exhibits it, and at the same time urge against the new system the objections which we have heard. Would they not act with more consistency in urging the establishment of the latter, as no less necessary to guard the Union against the future powers and resources of a body constructed like the existing Congress, than to save it from the dangers threatened by the present impotency of that assembly? I mean not, by anything here said, to throw censure on the measures which have been pursued by Congress. I am sensible that they could not have done otherwise. The public interest, the necessity of the case, imposed upon them the task of overleaping their constitutional limits. But is it not the fact an alarming proof of the danger resulting from a government which does not possess regular powers commensurate to its objects? A dissolution or usurpation is the dreadful dilemma to which it is continually exposed. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 38《Federalist Number 39 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 39 The Conformity of the Plan to Republican Principles. For the Independent Journal, Wednesday, January 16, 1788. Madison. To the People of the State of New York. The last paper having concluded the observations which were meant to introduce a candid survey of the plan of government reported by the Convention, we now proceed to the execution of that part of our undertaking. The first question that offers itself is whether the general form and aspect of the government be strictly republican. It is evident that no other form would be reconcilable with the genius of the people of America, 
with the fundamental principles of the revolution, or with that honourable determination which animates every votary of freedom, to rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. If the plan of the Convention, therefore, be found to depart from the Republican character, its advocates must abandon it as no longer defensible. What, then, are the distinctive characters of the Republican form? Were an answer to this question to be sought, not by recurring to principles, but in the application of the term by political writers, to the constitution of different states, no satisfactory one would ever be found. Holland, in which no particle of the supreme authority is derived from the people, has passed almost universally under the denomination of a republic. The same title has been bestowed on Venice, where absolute power over the great body of the people is exercised, in the most absolute manner, by a small body of hereditary nobles. Poland, which is a mixture of aristocracy and of monarchy in their worst forms, has been dignified with the same appellation. The government of England, which has one republican branch only, combined with an hereditary aristocracy and monarchy, has with equal impropriety been frequently placed on the list of republics. These examples, which are nearly as dissimilar to each other as to a genuine republic, show the extreme inaccuracy with which the term has been used in political disquisitions. If we resort for a criterion to the different principles on which different forms of government are established, we may define a republic to be, or at least bestow that name on, a government which derives all its powers, directly or indirectly, from the great body of the people, and is administered by persons holding their offices during pleasure, for a limited period, or during good behavior. It is essential to such a government that it be derived from the great body of the society, not from an inconsiderable proportion, or a favored class of it. Otherwise, a handful of tyrannical nobles, exercising their oppressions by a delegation of their powers, might aspire to the rank of republicans, and claim for their government the honorable title of republic. It is sufficient for such a government that the persons administering it be appointed, either directly or indirectly, by the people, and that they hold their appointments by either of the tenures just specified. Otherwise, every government in the United States, as well as every other popular government that has been or can be well organized or well executed, would be degraded from the Republican character. According to the Constitution of every state in the Union, some or other of the officers of government are appointed indirectly only by the people. According to most of them, the chief magistrate himself is so appointed, and according to one, this mode of appointment is extended to one of the coordinate branches of the legislature. According to all the constitutions, also, the tenure of the highest offices is extended to a definite period, and in many instances, both within the legislative and executive departments, to a period of years. According to the provisions of most of the constitutions, again, as well as according to the most respectable and received opinions on the subject, 
the members of the judiciary department are to retain their offices by the firm tenure of good behaviour on comparing the constitution planned by the convention with the standard here fixed we perceive at once that it is in the most rigid sense conformable to it the house of representatives like that of one branch at least of all the state legislatures is elected immediately by the great body of the people the senate like the present congress and the senate of maryland derives its appointment indirectly from the people the president is indirectly derived from the choice of the people according to the example in most of the states even the judges with all other officers of the union will as in the several states be the choice though a remote choice of the people themselves the duration of the appointments is equally conformable to the republican standard and to the model of state constitutions the house of representatives is periodically elective as in all the states and for the period of two years as in the state of south carolina the senate is elective for the period of six years which is but one year more than the period of the senate of maryland and but two more than that of the senates of new york and virginia the president is to continue in office for the period of four years as in new york and delaware the chief magistrate is elected for three years and in south carolina for two years in the other states the election is annual in several of the states however no constitutional provision is made for the impeachment of the chief magistrate and in delaware and virginia he is not impeachable till out of office the president of the united states is impeachable at any time during his continuance in office the tenure by which the judges are to hold their places is as it unquestionably ought to be that of good behavior the tenure of the ministerial offices generally will be a subject of legal regulation conformably to the reason of the case and the example of the state constitutions could any further proof be required of the republican complexion of this system the most decisive one might be found in its absolute prohibition of titles of nobility both under the federal and the state governments and in its express guarantee of the republican form to each of the latter but it was not sufficient say the adversaries of the proposed constitution for the convention to adhere to the republican form they ought with equal care to have preserved the federal form which regards the union as a confederacy of sovereign states instead of which they have framed a national government which regards the union as a consolidation of the states and it is asked by what authority this bold and radical innovation was undertaken the handle which has been made of this objection requires that it should be examined with some precision without inquiring into the accuracy of the distinction on which the objection is founded it will be necessary to adjust estimate of its force first to ascertain the real character of the government in question secondly to inquire how far the convention were authorized to propose such a government and thirdly how far the duty they owed to their country could supply any defect of regular authority first 
in order to ascertain the real character of the government it may be considered in relation to the foundation on which it is to be established to the sources from which its ordinary powers are to be drawn to the operation of those powers to the extent of them and to the authority by which future changes in the government are to be introduced on examining the first relation it appears on one hand that the constitution is to be founded on the assent and ratification of the people of america given by deputies elected for the special purpose but on the other that this assent and ratification is to be given by the people not as individuals composing one entire nation but as composing the distinct and independent states to which they respectively belong it is to be the assent and ratification of the several states derived from the supreme authority in each state the authority of the people themselves the act therefore establishing the constitution will not be a national but a federal act that it will be a federal and not a national act as these terms are understood by the objectors the act of the people as forming so many independent states not as forming one aggregate nation is obvious from this single consideration that it is to result neither from the decision of a majority of the people of the union nor from that of a majority of the states it must result from the unanimous assent of the several states that are parties to it differing no otherwise from their ordinary assent than in its being expressed not by the legislative authority but by that of the people themselves were the people regarded in this transaction as forming one nation the will of the majority of the whole people of the united states would bind the minority in the same manner as the majority in each state must bind the minority and the will of the majority must be determined either by a comparison of the individual votes or by considering the will of the majority of the states as evidence of the will of a majority of the people of the united states neither of these rules has been adopted each state in ratifying the constitution is considered as a sovereign body independent of all others and only to be bound by its own voluntary act in this relation then the new constitution will if established be a federal and not a national constitution the next relation is to the sources from which the ordinary powers of government are to be derived the house of representatives will derive its powers from the people of america and the people will be represented in the same proportion and on the same principle as they are in the legislature of a particular state so far the government is national not federal the senate on the other hand will derive its powers from the states as political and co-equal societies and these will be represented on the principle of equality in the senate as they now are in the existing congress so far the government is federal not national the executive power will be derived from a very compound source the immediate election of the president is to be made by the states in their political characters the votes allotted to them are in a compound ratio which considers them partly as distinct and co-equal societies partly as unequal members of the same society 
the eventual election again is to be made by that branch of the legislature which consists of the national representatives but in this particular act they are to be thrown into the form of individual delegations from so many distinct and co-equal bodies politic from this aspect of the government it appears to be of a mixed character presenting at least as many federal as national features the difference between a federal and national government as it relates to the operation of the government is supposed to consist in this that in the former the powers operate on the political bodies composing the confederacy in their political capacities in the latter on the individual citizens composing the nation in their individual capacities on trying the constitution by this criterion it falls under the national not the federal character though perhaps not so completely as has been understood in several cases and particularly in the trial of controversies to which states may be parties they must be viewed and proceeded against in their collective and political capacities only so far the national countenance of the government on this side seems to be disfigured by a few federal features but this blemish is perhaps unavoidable in any plan and the operation of the government on the people in their individual capacities in its ordinary and most essential proceedings may on the whole designated in this relation a national government but if the government be national with regard to the operation of its powers it changes its aspect again when we contemplate it in relation to the extent of its powers the idea of a national government involves in it not only an authority over the individual citizens but an indefinite supremacy over all persons and things so far as they are objects of lawful government among a people consolidated into one nation this supremacy is completely vested in the national legislature among communities united for particular purposes it is vested partly in the general and partly in the municipal legislatures in the former case all local authorities are subordinate to the supreme and may be controlled directed or abolished by it at pleasure in the latter the local or municipal authorities form distinct and independent portions of the supremacy no more subject within their respective spheres to the general authority than the general authority is subject to them within its own sphere in this relation then the proposed government cannot be deemed a national one since its jurisdiction extends to certain enumerated objects only and leaves to the several states a residuary and inviolable sovereignty over all other objects it is true that in controversies relating to the boundary between the two jurisdictions the tribunal which is ultimately to decide is to be established under the general government but this does not change the principle of the case the decision is to be impartially made according to the rules of the constitution and all the usual and most effectual precautions are taken to secure this impartiality some such tribunal is clearly essential to prevent an appeal to the sword and a dissolution of the compact and that it ought to be established under the general 
rather than under the local governments, or, to speak more properly, that it could be safely established under the first alone, is a position not likely to be combated. If we try the Constitution, by its last relation to the authority, by which amendments are to be made, we find it neither wholly national nor wholly federal. Were it wholly national, the supreme and ultimate authority would reside in the majority of the people of the Union, and this authority would be competent at all times, like that of a majority of every national society, to alter or abolish its established government. Were it wholly federal, on the other hand, the concurrence of each state in the Union would be essential to every alteration that would be binding on all. The mode provided by the plan of the Convention is not founded on either of these principles. In requiring more than a majority and principles, in requiring more than a majority, and particularly in computing the proportion by states, not by citizens, it departs from the national and advances toward the federal character. In rendering the concurrence of less than the whole number of states sufficient, it loses again the federal and partakes of the national character. The proposed Constitution, therefore, is, in strictness, neither a national nor a federal constitution, but a composition of both. In its foundation it is federal, not national. In the sources from which the ordinary powers of the government are drawn, it is partly federal and partly national. In the operation of these powers, it is national, not federal. In the extent of them, again, it is federal, not national. And finally, in the authoritative mode of introducing amendments, it is neither wholly federal nor wholly national. Signed Publius. End of Federalist number thirty nine. Federalist number forty of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 40. On the Powers of the Convention to Form a Mixed Government Examined and Sustained. For the New York Packet. Friday, January 18th. 1788. Madison. To the people of the State of New York. The second point to be examined is whether the Convention were authorized to frame and propose this mixed Constitution. The powers of the Convention ought, in strictness, to be determined by an inspection of the commissions given to the members by their respective constituents. As all of these, however, had reference either to the recommendation from the meeting at Annapolis in September 1786, or to that from Congress in February 1787, it will be sufficient to recur to these particular acts. The act from Annapolis recommends the, quote, appointment of commissioners to take into consideration the situation of the United States, to devise such further provisions as shall appear to them necessary to render the constitution of the federal government 
adequate to the exigencies of the Union, and to report such an act for that purpose to the United States in Congress assembled, as when agreed to by them, and afterwards confirmed by the legislature of every state, will effectually provide for the same. End quote. The recommendatory act of Congress is in the words following, quote, Whereas there is provision in the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union for making alterations therein by the assent of a Congress of the United States and of the legislatures of the several states, and whereas experience hath evinced that there are defects in the present Confederation, as a mean to remedy which several of the states, and particularly the state of New York, by express instructions to their delegates in Congress, have suggested a convention for the purposes expressed in the following resolution, and such convention appearing to be the most probable mean of establishing in these states a firm national government. Resolved, that in the opinion of Congress it is expedient that on the second Monday of May next a convention of delegates, who shall have been appointed by the several states, be held at Philadelphia, for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation, and reporting to Congress and the several legislatures such alterations and provisions therein, as shall, when agreed to in Congress, and confirmed by the states, render the Federal Constitution adequate to the exigencies of government and the preservation of the Union. End quote. From these two acts, it appears, first, that the object of the Convention was to establish in these states a firm national government, second, that this government was to be such as would be adequate to the exigencies of government and the preservation of the Union, third, that these purposes were to be effected by alterations and provisions in the Articles of Confederation, as it is expressed in the Act of Congress, or by such further provisions as should appear necessary, as it stands in the Recommendatory Act from Annapolis. Fourth, that the alterations and provisions were to be reported to Congress, and to the States, in order to be agreed to by the former and confirmed by the latter. From a comparison and fair construction of these several modes of expression, it is to be deduced the authority under which the Convention acted. They were to frame a national government, adequate to the exigencies of government and of the Union, and to reduce the Articles of Confederation into such a form as to accomplish these purposes. There are two rules of construction, dictated by plain reason, as well as founded on legal axioms. The one is, that every part of the expression ought, if possible, to be allowed some meaning, and be made to conspire to some common end. The other is, that where the several parts cannot be made to coincide, the less important should give way to the more important part. The means should be sacrificed to the end, rather than the end to the means. Suppose, then, that the expressions defining the authority of the Convention were irreconcilably at variance with each other, that a national and adequate government could not possibly, in the judgment of the Convention, 
be affected by alterations and provisions in the Articles of Confederation. Which part of the definition ought to have been embraced, and which rejected? Which was the more important, which the less important part? Which the end, which the means? Let the most scrupulous expositors of delegated powers, let the most inveterate objectors against those exercised by the Convention, answer these questions. Let them declare, whether it was of most importance to the happiness of the people of America, that the Articles of Confederation should be disregarded, and an adequate government be provided, and the Union preserved, or that an adequate government should be omitted, and the Articles of Confederation preserved. Let them declare whether the preservation of these Articles was the end, for securing which a reform of the government was to be introduced as the means, or whether the establishment of a government, adequate to the national happiness, was the end at which these Articles themselves originally aimed, and to which they ought, as insufficient means, to have been sacrificed. But is it necessary to suppose that these expressions are absolutely irreconcilable to each other, that no alterations or provisions in the Articles of the Confederation could possibly mould them into a national and adequate government, into such a government as been proposed by the Convention? No stress, it is presumed, will, in this case, be laid on the title, a change of that could never be deemed an exercise of ungranted power. Alterations in the body of the instrument are expressly authorized. New provisions therein are also expressly authorized. Here, then, is a power to change the title, to insert new articles, to alter old ones. Must it of necessity be admitted that this power is infringed, so long as a part of the old articles remain? Those who maintain the affirmative ought at least to mark the boundary between authorized and usurped innovations, between that degree of change which lies within the compass of alterations and further provisions, and that which amounts to a transmutation of the government. Will it be said that the alterations ought not to have touched the substance of the Confederation? The States would never have appointed a convention with so much solemnity, nor described its objects with so much latitude, if some substantial reform had not been in contemplation. Will it be said that the fundamental principles of the Confederation were not within the purview of the convention, and ought not to have been varied? I ask, what are these principles? Do they require that— in the establishment of the Constitution, the States should be regarded as distinct and independent sovereigns? They are so regarded by the Constitution proposed. Do they require that the members of the government should derive their appointment from the legislatures, not from the people of the States? One branch of the new government is to be appointed by these legislatures— and under the Confederation the delegates to Congress may all be appointed immediately by the people, and in two states are actually so appointed. Do they require that the powers of the government should act on the states, and not immediately on individuals? 
In some instances, as has been shown, the powers of the new government will act on the states in their collective characters. In some instances also, those of the existing government act immediately on individuals. In cases of capture, of piracy, of the post-office, of coins, weights, and measures, of trade with the Indians, of claims under grants of land by different states, and above all, in the case of trials by courts-martial in the army and navy, by which death may be inflicted without the intervention of a jury, or even of a civil magistrate. In all these cases the powers of the Confederation operate immediately on the persons and interests of individual citizens. Do these fundamental principles require, particularly, that no tax should be levied without the intermediate agency of the states? The Confederation itself authorizes a direct tax, to a certain extent, on the post-office. The power of coinage has been so construed by Congress as to levy a tribute immediately from that source also. But pretermitting these instances, was it not an acknowledged object of the Convention and the universal expectation of the people that the regulation of trade should be submitted to the general government in such a form as would render it an immediate source of general revenue? Had not Congress repeatedly recommended this measure as not inconsistent with the fundamental principles of the Confederation? Had not every state but one, had not New York herself, so far complied with the plan of Congress as to recognize the principle of the innovation? Do these principles, in fine, require that the powers of the general government should be limited, and that, beyond this limit, the states should be left in possession of their sovereignty and independence? We have seen that in the new government, as in the old, the general powers are limited, and that the states, in all unenumerated cases, are left in the enjoyment of their sovereign and independent jurisdiction. The truth is, that the great principles of the Constitution proposed by the Convention may be considered less as absolutely new than as the expansion of principles which are found in the Articles of Confederation. The misfortune under the latter system has been that these principles are so feeble and confined as to justify all the charges of inefficiency which have been urged against it and to require a degree of enlargement which gives to the new system the aspect of an entire transformation of the old. In one particular it is admitted that the Convention have departed from the tenor of their commission. Instead of reporting a plan requiring the confirmation of the legislatures of all the states, they have reported a plan which is to be confirmed by the people, and may be carried into effect by nine states only. It is worthy of remark that this objection, though the most plausible, has been the least urged in the publications which have swarmed against the Convention. The forbearance can only have proceeded from an irresistible conviction of the absurdity of subjecting the fate of twelve states to the perverseness or corruption of a thirteenth from the example of inflexible opposition given by a majority of one-sixtieth of the people of America 
to a measure approved and called for by the voice of twelve states, comprising fifty-nine sixtieths of the people, an example still fresh in the memory and indignation of every citizen who has felt for the wounded honour and prosperity of his country. As this objection, therefore, has been in a manner waived by those who have criticised the powers of the Convention, I dismiss it without further observation. The third point to be inquired into is, how far considerations of duty arising out of the case itself could have supplied any defect of regular authority. In the preceding inquiries, the powers of the Convention have been analysed and tried with the same rigour, and by the same rules, as if they had been real and final powers for the establishment of a Constitution for the United States. We have seen in what manner they have borne the trial, even on that supposition. It is time now to recollect that the powers were merely advisory and recommendatory, that they were so meant by the States, and so understood by the Convention, and that the latter have accordingly planned and proposed a Constitution which is to be of no more consequence than the paper on which it is written, unless it be stamped with the approbation of those to whom it is addressed. This reflection places the subject in a point of view altogether different, and will enable us to judge with propriety of the course taken by the Convention. Let us view the ground on which the Convention stood. It may be collected from their proceedings that they were deeply and unanimously impressed with the crisis, which had led their country almost with one voice to make so singular and solemn an experiment for correcting the errors of a system by which this crisis had been produced, that they were no less deeply and unanimously convinced that such a reform as they have proposed was absolutely necessary to effect the purposes of their appointment. It could not be unknown to them that the hopes and expectations of the great body of citizens throughout this great empire were turned with the keenest anxiety to the event of their deliberations. They had every reason to believe that the contrary sentiments agitated the minds and bosoms of every external and internal foe to the liberty and prosperity of the United States. They had seen in the origin and progress of the experiment the alacrity with which the proposition, made by a single state, Virginia, towards a partial amendment of the Confederation, had been attended to and promoted. They had seen the liberty assumed by a very few deputies from a very few states, convened at Annapolis, of recommending a great and critical object, wholly foreign to their commission, not only justified by the public opinion, but actually carried into effect by twelve out of the thirteen states. They had seen, in a variety of instances, assumptions by Congress, not only of recommendatory, but of operative powers, warranted, in the public estimation, by occasions and objects infinitely less urgent than those by which their conduct was to be governed. They must have reflected that in all great changes of established governments, forms ought to give way to substance, that a rigid adherence in such cases to the former 
would render nominal and nugatory the transcendent and precious right of the people to abolish or alter their governments as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness since it is impossible for the people spontaneously and universally to move in concert towards their object and it is therefore essential that such changes be instituted by some informal and unauthorized propositions made by some patriotic and respectable citizen or number of citizens they must have recollected that it was by this irregular and assumed privilege of proposing to the people plans for their safety and happiness that the states were first united against the danger with which they were threatened by their ancient government that committees and congresses were formed for concentrating their efforts and defending their rights and that conventions were elected in the several states for establishing the constitutions under which they are now governed nor could it have been forgotten that no little ill-timed scruples no zeal for adhering to ordinary forms were anywhere seen except in those who wished to indulge under these masks their secret enmity to the substance contended for they must have borne in mind that as the plan to be framed and proposed was to be submitted to the people themselves the disapprobation of this supreme authority would destroy it for ever its approbation blot out antecedent errors and irregularities it might even have occurred to them that where a disposition to cavil prevailed their neglect to execute the degree of power vested in them and still more their recommendation of any measure whatever not warranted by their commission would not less excite anima adversion than a recommendation at once of a measure fully commensurate to the national exigencies had the convention under all these impressions and in the midst of all these considerations instead of exercising a manly confidence in their country by whose confidence they had been so peculiarly distinguished and of pointing out a system capable in their judgment of securing its happiness taken the cold and sullen resolution of disappointing its ardent hopes of sacrificing substance to forms of committing the dearest interest of their country to the uncertainties of delay and the hazard of events let me ask the man who can raise his mind to one elevated conception who can awaken in his bosom one patriotic emotion what judgment ought to have been pronounced by the impartial world by the friends of mankind by every virtuous citizen on the conduct and character of this assembly or if there be a man whose propensity to condemn is susceptible of no control let me then ask what sentence he has in reserve for the twelve states who usurp the power of sending deputies to the convention a body utterly unknown to their constitutions for congress who recommended the appointment of this body equally unknown to the confederation and for the state of new york in particular which first urged and then complied with this unauthorized interposition but that the objectors may be disarmed of every pretext it shall be granted for a moment that the convention were neither authorized by their commission 
nor justified by circumstances in proposing a constitution for their country. Does it follow that the constitution ought, for that reason alone, to be rejected? If, according to the noble precept, it be lawful to accept good advice, even from an enemy, shall we set the ignoble example of refusing such advice, even when it is offered by our friends? The prudent inquiry in all cases ought surely to be, not so much from whom the advice comes, as whether the advice be good. The sum of what has been here advanced and proved is, that the charge against the Convention, of exceeding their powers, except in one instance little urged by the objectors, has no foundation to support it, that if they had exceeded their powers, they were not only warranted, but required, as the confidential servants of their country, by the circumstances in which they were placed, to exercise the liberty which they assume, and that finally, if they had violated both their powers and their obligations in proposing a constitution, this ought nevertheless to be embraced, if it be calculated to accomplish the views and happiness of the people of America. How far this character is due to the Constitution is the subject under investigation. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 40《Federalist No. 41 of the Federalist Papers》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina.《The Federalist Papers》by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. — Federalist No. 41 General View of the Powers Conferred by the Constitution For the Independent Journal, Saturday, January 19th, 1788, Madison To the People of the State of New York The Constitution proposed by the Convention may be considered under two general points of view. The first relates to the sum or quantity of power which it vests in the government, including the restraints imposed on the states, the second, to the particular structure of the government, and the distribution of this power among its several branches. Under the first view of the subject, two important questions arise. One, whether any part of the powers transferred to the general government be unnecessary or improper. Two, whether the entire mass of them be dangerous to the portion of jurisdiction left in the several states. Is the aggregate power of the general government greater than ought to have been vested in it? This is the first question. It cannot have escaped those who have attended with candor to the arguments employed against the extensive powers of the government, that the authors of them have very little considered how far these powers were necessary means of attaining a necessary end. They have chosen rather to dwell on the inconveniences which must be unavoidably blended with all political advantages, and on the possible abuses which must be incident to every power or trust 
of which a beneficial use can be made. This method of handling the subject cannot impose on the good sense of the people of America. It may display the subtlety of the writer. It may open a boundless field for rhetoric and declamation. It may inflame the passions of the unthinking, and may confirm the prejudices of the misthinking. But cool and candid people will at once reflect that the purest of human blessings must have a portion of alloy in them, that the choice must always be made, if not of the lesser evil, at least of the greater, not the perfect, good, and that in every political institution a power to advance the public happiness involves a discretion which may be misapplied and abused. They will see, therefore, that in all cases where power is to be conferred, the point first to be decided is whether such a power be necessary to the public good, as the next will be, in case of an affirmative decision, to guard as effectually as possible against a perversion of the power to the public detriment. That we may form a correct judgment on this subject, it will be proper to review the several powers conferred on the government of the Union, and that this be the more conveniently done they may be reduced into different classes, as they relate to the following different objects. 1. Security against foreign danger. 2. Regulation of the intercourse with foreign nations. 3. Maintenance of harmony and proper intercourse among the states. 4. Certain miscellaneous objects of general utility. 5. Restraint of the states from certain injurious acts. And 6. Provisions for giving due efficacy to all these powers. The powers falling within the first class are those of declaring war and granting letters of mark, of providing armies and fleets, of regulating and calling forth the militia, of levying and borrowing money. Security against foreign danger is one of the primitive objects of civil society. It is an avowed and essential object of the American Union. The powers requisite for attaining it must be effectually confided to the federal councils. Is the power of declaring war necessary? No man will answer this question in the negative. It would be superfluous, therefore, to enter into a proof of the affirmative. The existing confederation establishes this power in the most ample form. Is the power of raising armies and equipping fleets necessary? This is involved in the foregoing power. It is involved in the power of self-defense. But was it necessary to give an indefinite power of raising troops, as well as providing fleets, and of maintaining both in peace as well as in war? The answer to these questions has been too far anticipated in another place, to admit an extensive discussion of them in this place. The answer, indeed, seems to be so obvious and conclusive as scarcely to justify such a discussion in any place. With what color of propriety could the force necessary for defense be limited by those who cannot limit the force of offense? If a federal constitution could chain the ambition or set bounds to the exertions of all other nations, 
then indeed might it prudently chain the discretion of its own government and set bounds to the exertions for its own safety how could a readiness for war in time of peace be safely prohibited unless we could prohibit in like manner the preparations and establishments of every hostile nation the means of security can only be regulated by the means and the danger of attack they will in fact be ever determined by these rules and by no others it is in vain to oppose constitutional barriers to the impulse of self-preservation it is worse than in vain because it plants in the constitution itself necessary usurpations of power every precedent of which is a germ of unnecessary and multiplied repetitions if one nation maintains constantly a disciplined army ready for the service of ambition or revenge it obliges the most pacific nations who may be within the reach of its enterprises to take corresponding precautions the fifteenth century was the unhappy epoch of military establishments in the time of peace they were introduced by charles the seventh of france all europe has followed or been forced into the example had the example not been followed by other nations all europe must long ago have worn the chains of a universal monarch were every nation except france now to disband its peace establishments the same event might follow the veteran legions of rome were an overmatch for the undisciplined valor of all other nations and rendered her the mistress of the world not the less true is it that the liberties of rome proved the final victim to her military triumphs and that the liberties of europe as far as they ever existed have with few exceptions been the price of her military establishments a standing force therefore is a dangerous at the same time that it may be a necessary provision on the smallest scale it has its inconveniences on an extensive scale its consequences may be fatal on any scale it is an object of laudable circumspection and precaution a wise nation will combine all these considerations and whilst it does not rashly preclude itself from any resource which may become essential to its safety will exert all its prudence in diminishing both the necessity and the danger of resorting to one which may be inauspicious to its liberties the clearest marks of this prudence are stamped on the proposed constitution the union itself which it cements and secures destroys every pretext for a military establishment which could be dangerous america united with a handful of troops or without a single soldier exhibits a more forbidding posture to foreign ambition than america disunited with a hundred thousand veterans ready for combat it was remarked on a former occasion that the want of this pretext had saved the liberties of one nation in europe being rendered by her insular situation and her maritime resources impregnable to the armies of her neighbors the rulers of great britain have never been able by real or artificial dangers to cheat the public into an extensive peace establishment the distance of the united states from the powerful nations of the world 
gives them the same happy security. A dangerous establishment can never be necessary or plausible, so long as they continue a united people. But let it never, for a moment, be forgotten that they are indebted for this advantage to the Union alone. The moment of its dissolution will be the date of a new order of things. The fears of the weaker, or the ambition of the stronger states, or confederacies, will set the same example in the new as Charles the Seventh did in the old world. The example will be followed here from the same motives which produced universal imitation there. Instead of deriving from our situation the precious advantage which Great Britain has derived from hers, the face of America will be but a copy of that of the continent of Europe. It will present liberty everywhere crushed between standing armies and perpetual taxes. The fortunes of disunited America will be even more disastrous than those of Europe. The sources of evil in the latter are confined to their own limits. No superior powers of another quarter of the globe intrigue among her rival nations, inflame their mutual animosities, and render them the instruments of foreign ambition, jealousy, and revenge. In America, the miseries springing from her internal jealousies, contentions, and wars would form a part only of her lot. A plentiful addition of evils would have their source in that relation in which Europe stands to this quarter of the earth, and which no other quarter of the earth bears to Europe. This picture of the consequences of disunion cannot be too highly colored, or too often exhibited. Every man who loves peace, every man who loves his country, every man who loves liberty, ought to have it ever before his eyes, that he may cherish in his heart a due attachment to the Union of America, and be able to set a due value on the means of preserving it. Next to the effectual establishment of the Union, the best possible precaution against danger from standing armies is a limitation of the term for which revenue may be appropriated to their support. This precaution the Constitution has prudently added. I will not repeat here the observations which, I flatter myself, have placed this subject in a just and satisfactory light. But it may not be improper to take notice of an argument against this part of the Constitution, which has been drawn from the policy and practice of Great Britain. It is said that the continuance of an army in that kingdom requires an annual vote of the legislature, whereas the American Constitution has lengthened this critical period to two years. This is the form in which the comparison is usually stated to the public, but is it a just form? Is it a fair comparison? Does the British Constitution restrain the parliamentary discretion to one year? Does the American impose on the Congress appropriations for two years? On the contrary, it cannot be unknown to the authors of the fallacy themselves that the British Constitution fixes no limit whatever to the discretion of the legislature, and that the American ties down the legislature to two years as the longest admissible term. Had the argument from the British example been truly stated, it would have stood thus. 
the term for which supplies may be appropriated to the army establishment, though unlimited by the British Constitution, has nevertheless in practice been limited by parliamentary discretion to a single year. Now, if in Great Britain, where the House of Commons is elected for seven years, where so great a proportion of the members are elected by so small a proportion of the people, where the electors are so corrupted by the representatives, and the representatives so corrupted by the crown, the representative body can possess a power to make appropriations to the army for an indefinite term, without desiring, or without daring, to extend the term beyond a single year, ought not suspicion herself to blush in pretending that the representatives of the United States elected freely by the whole body of the people, every second year, cannot be safely entrusted with the discretion over such appropriations expressly limited to the short period of two years. A bad cause seldom fails to betray itself. Of this truth, the management of the opposition to the federal government is an unvaried exemplification. But among all the blunders which have been committed, none is more striking than the attempt to enlist on that side the prudent jealousy entertained by the people of standing armies. The attempt has awakened fully the public attention to that important subject, and has led to investigations which must terminate in a thorough and universal conviction, not only that the Constitution has provided the most effectual guards against danger from that quarter, but that nothing short of a constitution fully adequate to the national defense and the preservation of the Union can save America from as many standing armies as it may be split into states or confederacies, and from such a progressive augmentation of these establishments in each as will render them as burdensome to the properties and ominous to the liberties of the people as any establishment that can become necessary under a united and efficient government, must be tolerable to the former and safe to the latter. The palpable necessity of the power to provide and maintain a navy has protected that part of the Constitution against a spirit of censure, which has spared few other parts. It must, indeed, be numbered among the greatest blessings of America, that as her union will be the only source of her maritime strength, so this will be a principal source of her security against danger from abroad. In this respect, our situation bears another likeness to the insular advantage of Great Britain. The batteries most capable of repelling foreign enterprises on our safety are happily such as can never be turned by a perfidious government against our liberties. The inhabitants of the Atlantic frontier are all of them deeply interested in this provision for naval protection, and if they have hitherto been suffered to sleep quietly in their beds, if their property has remained safe against the predatory spirit of licentious adventurers, if their maritime towns have not yet been compelled to ransom themselves from the terrors of a conflagration, by yielding to the exactions of daring and sudden invaders, these instances of good fortune are not to be ascribed to the capacity of the existing government for the protection of those from whom it claims allegiance, 
but to causes that are fugitive and fallacious. If we accept, perhaps, Virginia and Maryland, which are peculiarly vulnerable on their eastern frontiers, no part of the Union ought to feel more anxiety on this subject than New York. Her seacoast is extensive. A very important district of the state is an island. The state itself is penetrated by a large navigable river for more than fifty leagues. The great emporium of its commerce, the great reservoir of its wealth, lies every moment at the mercy of events, and may almost be regarded as a hostage for ignominious compliances with the dictates of a foreign enemy, or even with the rapacious demands of pirates and barbarians. Should a war be the result of the precarious situation of European affairs, and all the unruly passions attending it be let loose on the ocean, our escape from insults and depredations, not only on that element but on every part of the other bordering on it, will be truly miraculous. In the present condition of America, the states more immediately exposed to these calamities have nothing to hope from the phantom of a general government which now exists, and if their single resources were equal to the task of fortifying themselves against the danger, the object to be protected would be almost consumed by the means of protecting them. The power of regulating and calling forth the militia has been already sufficiently vindicated and explained. The power of levying and borrowing money, being the sinew of that which is to be exerted in the national defence, is properly thrown into the same class with it. This power, also, has been examined already with much attention, and has, I trust, been clearly shown to be necessary, both in the extent and form given to it by the Constitution. I will address one additional reflection only to those who contend that the power ought to have been restrained to external taxation by which they mean taxes on articles imported from other countries. It cannot be doubted that this will always be a valuable source of revenue, that for a considerable time it must be a principal source, that at this moment it is an essential one. But we may form very mistaken ideas on this subject if we do not call to mind in our calculations that the extent of revenue drawn from foreign commerce must vary with the variations both in the extent and the kind of imports, and that these variations do not correspond with the progress of population, which must be the general measure of the public wants. As long as agriculture continues the sole field of labor, the importation of manufactures must increase as the consumers multiply. As soon as domestic manufactures are begun by the hands not called for by agriculture, the imported manufactures will decrease as the numbers of people increase. In a more remote stage, the imports may consist in a considerable part of raw materials, which will be wrought into articles for exportation, and will, therefore, require rather the encouragement of bounties than to be loaded with discouraging duties. A system of government, meant for duration, ought to contemplate these revolutions and be able to accommodate itself to them. Some, who have not denied the necessity of the power of taxation, have grounded a very fierce attack against the Constitution 
on the language in which it is defined. It has been urged and echoed that the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts, and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, amounts to an unlimited commission to exercise every power which may be alleged to be necessary for the common defense or general welfare. No stronger proof could be given of the distress under which these writers labor for objections than their stooping to such a misconstruction. Had no other enumeration or definition of the powers of the Congress been found in the Constitution than the general expressions just cited, the authors of the objection might have had some color for it, though it would have been difficult to find a reason for so awkward a form of describing an authority to legislate in all possible cases. A power to destroy the freedom of the press, the trial by jury, or even to regulate the course of dissents, or the forms of conveyances, must be very singularly expressed by the terms to raise money for the general welfare." But what color can the objection have when a specification of the objects alluded to by these general terms immediately follows, and is not even separated by a longer pause than a semicolon? If the different parts of the same instrument ought to be so expounded as to give meaning to every part which will bear it, shall one part of the same sentence be excluded altogether from a share in the meaning? and shall the more doubtful and indefinite terms be retained in their full extent, and the clear and precise expressions be denied any signification whatsoever? For what purpose could the enumeration of particular powers be inserted, if these and all others were meant to be included in the preceding general power? Nothing is more natural nor common than first to use a general phrase and then to explain and qualify it by a recital of particulars. But the idea of an enumeration of particulars which neither explain nor qualify the general meaning, and can have no other effect than to confound and mislead, is an absurdity, which, as we are reduced to the dilemma of charging either on the authors of the objection or on the authors of the Constitution, we must take the liberty of supposing had not its origin with the latter. The objection here is the more extraordinary, as it appears that the language used by the Convention is a copy from the Articles of Confederation. The objects of the Union among the States, as described in Article Third, are, quote, their common defense, security of their liberties, and mutual and general welfare, end quote terms of Article Eighth are still more identical. Quote, all charges of war and all other expenses that shall be incurred for the common defense or general welfare and allowed by the United States in Congress shall be defrayed out of a common treasury, end quote, etc. A similar language again occurs in Article Ninth. Construe either of these articles by the rules which would justify the construction put on the new Constitution, and they vest in the existing Congress a power to legislate in all cases whatsoever. But what would have been thought of that assembly if, attaching themselves to these general expressions, 
and disregarding the specifications which ascertain and limit their import, they had exercised an unlimited power of providing for the common defence and general welfare. I appeal to the objectors themselves whether they would in that case have employed the same reasoning and justification of Congress as they now make use of against the Convention. How difficult it is for error to escape its own condemnation! Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 41《Federalist Number 42 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 42. The powers conferred by the Constitution further considered. From the New York Packet, Tuesday, January 22, 1788. Madison. To the people of the State of New York. The second class of powers, lodged in the general government, consists of those which regulate the intercourse with foreign nations, to wit, to make treaties to send and receive ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls, to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offences against the law of nations, to regulate foreign commerce, including a power to prohibit, after the year 1808, the importation of slaves, and to lay an intermediate duty of ten dollars per head as a discouragement to such importations. This class of powers forms an obvious and essential branch of the federal administration. If we are to be one nation in any respect, it clearly ought to be in respect to other nations. The powers to make treaties and to send and receive ambassadors speak their own propriety. Both of them are comprised in the Articles of Confederation, with this difference only, that the former is disembarrassed, by the plan of the Convention, of an exception, under which treaties might be substantially frustrated by regulations of the states, and that a power of appointing and receiving other public ministers and consuls is expressly and very properly added to the former provision concerning ambassadors. The term ambassador, if taken strictly, as seems to be required by the second of the Articles of Confederation, comprehends the highest grade only of public ministers, and excludes the grades which the United States will be most likely to prefer, where foreign embassies may be necessary. And under no latitude of construction will the term comprehend consuls. Yet it has been found expedient, and has been the practice of Congress, to employ the inferior grades of public ministers, and to send and receive consuls. It is true that where treaties of commerce stipulate for the mutual appointment of consuls whose functions are connected with commerce, the admission of foreign consuls may fall within the power of making commercial treaties, and that where no such treaties exist, the mission of American consuls into foreign countries may perhaps be covered under the authority, given by the Ninth Article of the Confederation, 
to appoint all such civil officers as may be necessary for managing the general affairs of the United States. But the admission of consuls into the United States, where no previous treaty has stipulated it, seems to have been nowhere provided for. A supply of the omission is one of the lesser instances in which the Convention have improved on the model before them. But the most minute provisions become important when they tend to obviate the necessity or the pretext for gradual and unobserved usurpations of power. A list of the cases in which Congress have been betrayed, or forced by the defects of the Confederation into violations of their chartered authorities, would not a little surprise those who have paid no attention to the subject, and would be no inconsiderable argument in favour of the new Constitution, which seems to have provided no less studiously for the lesser than the more obvious and striking defects of the old. The power to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, and offences against the law of nations, belongs with equal propriety to the general government, and is a still greater improvement on the Articles of Confederation. These articles contain no provision for the case of offences against the law of nations, and consequently leave it in the power of any indiscreet member to embroil the Confederacy with foreign nations. The provision of the Federal Articles on the subject of piracies and felonies extends no further than to the establishment of courts for the trial of these offences. The definition of piracies might, perhaps, without inconveniency, be left to the law of nations, though a legislative definition of them is found in most municipal codes. A definition of felonies on the high seas is evidently requisite. Felony is a term of loose signification, even in the common law of England, and of various import in the statute law of that kingdom. But neither the common nor the statute law of that, or of any other nation, ought to be a standard for the proceedings of this, unless previously made its own by legislative adoption. The meaning of the term, as defined in the codes of the several states, would be as impracticable as the former would be a dishonourable and illegitimate guide. It is not precisely the same in any two of the states, and varies in each with every revision of its criminal laws. For the sake of certainty and uniformity, therefore, the power of defining felonies in this case was in every respect necessary and proper. The regulation of foreign commerce— having fallen within several views which have been taken of this subject, has been too fully discussed to need additional proofs here of its being properly submitted to the Federal Administration. It were doubtless to be wished that the power of prohibiting the importation of slaves had not been postponed until the year 1808, or rather that it had been suffered to have immediate operation. But it is not difficult to account— either for this restriction on the general government, or for the manner in which the whole clause is expressed. It ought to be considered as a great point gained in favour of humanity, that a period of twenty years may terminate forever, within these states, a traffic which has so long and so loudly upbraided the barbarism of modern policy, that within that period it will receive a considerable discouragement from the federal government, 
and may be totally abolished, by a concurrence of the few states which continue the unnatural traffic, in the prohibitory example which has been given by so great a majority of the Union. Happy would it be for the unfortunate Africans, if an equal prospect lay before them of being redeemed from the oppressions of their European brethren. Attempts have been made to pervert this clause into an objection against the Constitution, by representing it on one side as a criminal toleration of an illicit practice, and on another as calculated to prevent voluntary and beneficial emigrations from Europe to America. I mention these misconstructions, not with a view to give them an answer, for they deserve none, but as specimens of the manner and spirit in which some have thought fit to conduct their opposition to the proposed government. The powers included in the third class are those which provide for the harmony and proper intercourse among the states. Under this head might be included the particular restraints imposed on the authority of the states, and certain powers of the judicial department, but the former are reserved for a distinct class, and the latter will be particularly examined when we arrive at the structure and organization of the government. I shall confine myself to a cursory review of the remaining powers comprehended under this third description, to wit, to regulate commerce among the several states and the Indian tribes, to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the current coin and securities of the United States, to fix the standard of weights and measures, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization, and uniform laws of bankruptcy, to prescribe the manner in which the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of each state shall be proved, and the effect they shall have in other states, and to establish post-offices and post-roads. The defect of power in the existing confederacy to regulate the commerce between its several members is in the number of those which have been clearly pointed out by experience. To the proofs and remarks which former papers have brought into view on this subject, it may be added that without this supplemental provision, the great and essential power of regulating foreign commerce would have been incomplete and ineffectual. A very material object of this power was the relief of the states which import and export through other states, from the improper contributions levied on them by the latter. Were these at liberty to regulate the trade between state and state, it must be foreseen that ways would be found out to load the articles of import and export, during the passage through their jurisdiction, with duties which would fall on the makers of the latter and the consumers of the former. We may be assured by past experience that such a practice would be introduced by future contrivances, and both by that and a common knowledge of human affairs, that it would nourish unceasing animosities, and not improbably terminate in serious interruptions of the public tranquillity. To those who do not view the question through the medium of passion or of interest, the desire of the commercial states to collect in any form an indirect revenue from their uncommercial neighbors must appear not less impolitic than it is unfair, since it would stimulate the injured party, by resentment as well as interest, 
to resort to less convenient channels for their foreign trade. But the mild voice of reason, pleading the cause of an enlarged and permanent interest, is but too often drowned, before public bodies as well as individuals, by the clamours of an impatient avidity for immediate and immoderate gain. The necessity of a superintending authority over the reciprocal trade of confederated states has been illustrated by other examples as well as our own. In Switzerland, where the union is so very slight, each canton is obliged to allow to merchandises a passage through its jurisdiction into other cantons, without an augmentation of the tolls. In Germany it is a law of the empire that the princes and states shall not lay tolls or customs on bridges, rivers, or passages, without the consent of the emperor and the diet. Though it appears from a quotation in an antecedent paper, that the practice in this, as in many other instances in that confederacy, has not followed the law, and has produced there the mischiefs which have been foreseen here. Among the restraints imposed by the Union of the Netherlands on its members, one is that they shall not establish imposts disadvantageous to their neighbours without the general permission. The regulation of commerce with the Indian tribes is very properly unfettered from two limitations in the Articles of Confederation, which render the provision obscure and contradictory. The power is there restrained to Indians, not members of any of the states, and is not to violate or infringe the legislative right of any state within its own limits. What description of Indians are to be deemed members of a state is not yet settled, and has been a question of frequent perplexity and contention in the federal councils. And how the trade with Indians, though not members of a state, yet residing within its legislative jurisdiction, can be regulated by an external authority, without so far intruding on the internal rights of legislation, is absolutely incomprehensible. This is not the only case in which the Articles of Confederation have inconsiderately endeavoured to accomplish impossibilities, to reconcile a partial sovereignty in the Union with complete sovereignty in the States, to subvert a mathematical axiom by taking away a part and letting the whole remain. All that need be remarked on the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and a foreign coin, is, that by providing for this last case, the Constitution has supplied a material omission in the Articles of Confederation. The authority of the existing Congress is restrained to the regulation of coin struck by their own authority, or that of the respective states. It must be seen at once that the proposed uniformity in the value of the current coin might be destroyed by subjecting that of foreign coin to the different regulations of the different states. The punishment of counterfeiting the public securities, as well as the current coin, is submitted, of course, to that authority which is to secure the value of both. The regulation of weights and measures is transferred from the Articles of Confederation, and is founded on like considerations with the preceding power of regulating coin. The dissimilarity in the rules of naturalization has long been remarked as a fault in our system. 
and as laying a foundation for intricate and delicate questions. In the fourth article of the Confederation, it is declared that the free inhabitants of each of these states, paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice excepted, shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states, and the people of each state shall, in every other, enjoy all the privileges of trade and commerce, etc. There is a confusion of language here, which is remarkable. Why the terms free inhabitants are used in one part of the article, free citizens in another, and people in another, or what was meant by superadding to all privileges and immunities of free citizens, all the privileges of trade and commerce, cannot easily be determined. It seems to be a construction scarcely avoidable, however, that those who come under the denomination of free inhabitants of a state, although not citizens of such state, are entitled, in every other state, to all the privileges of free citizens of the latter, that is, to greater privileges than they may be entitled to in their own state, so that it may be in the power of a particular state, or rather every state is laid under a necessity, not only to confer the rights of citizenship in other states upon any whom it may admit to such rights within itself, but upon any whom it may allow to become inhabitants within its jurisdiction. But were an exposition of the term inhabitants to be admitted, which would confine the stipulated privileges to citizens alone, the difficulty is diminished only, not removed. The very improper power would still be retained by each state of naturalizing aliens in every other state. In one state, residence for a short term confirms all the rights of citizenship. In another, qualifications of greater importance are required. An alien, therefore, legally incapacitated for certain rights in the latter, may, by previous residence only in the former, elude his incapacity, and thus the law of one state be preposterously rendered paramount to the law of another, within the jurisdiction of the other. We owe it to mere casualty." that very serious embarrassments on this subject have been hitherto escaped. By the laws of several states, certain descriptions of aliens, who had rendered themselves obnoxious, were laid under interdicts inconsistent not only with the rights of citizenship, but with the privilege of residence. What would have been the consequence, if such persons, by residence or otherwise, had acquired the character of citizens under the laws of another state, and then asserted their rights as such, both to residence and citizenship, within the state proscribing them. Whatever the legal consequences might have been, other consequences would probably have resulted, of too serious a nature not to be provided against. The new Constitution has, accordingly, with great propriety, made provision against them, and all others proceeding from the defect of the Confederation on this head, by authorizing the general government to establish a uniform rule of naturalization throughout the United States. The power of establishing uniform laws of bankruptcy is so intimately connected with the regulation of commerce, 
and will prevent so many frauds where the parties or their property may lie or be removed into different states, that the expediency of it seems not likely to be drawn into question. The power of prescribing by general laws the manner in which the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of each state shall be proved, and the effect they shall have in other states, is an evident and valuable improvement on the clause relating to this subject in the Articles of Confederation. The meaning of the latter is extremely indeterminate, and can be of little importance under any interpretation which it will bear. The power here established may be rendered a very convenient instrument of justice, and be particularly beneficial on the borders of contiguous states, where the effects liable to justice may be suddenly and secretly translated, in any stage of the process, within a foreign jurisdiction. The power of establishing post-roads must, in every view, be a harmless power, and may, perhaps, by judicious management, become productive of great public conveniency. Nothing which tends to facilitate the intercourse between the states can be deemed unworthy of the public care. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 42number 43 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist number 43. The same subject continued the powers conferred by the Constitution further considered. For the Independent Journal, Wednesday, January 23, 1788. Madison. To the people of the State of New York. The fourth class comprises the following miscellaneous powers. 1. A power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for a limited time to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. The utility of this power will scarcely be questioned. The copyright of authors has been solemnly adjudged, in Great Britain, to be a right of common law. The right to useful inventions seems with equal reason to belong to the inventors. The public good fully coincides in both cases with the claims of individuals. The states cannot separately make effectual provisions for either of the cases, and most of them have anticipated the decision of this point by laws passed at the instance of Congress. 2. To exercise exclusive legislation, in all cases whatsoever, over such district, not exceeding ten miles square, as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of the government of the United States, and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislatures of the states in which the same shall be, for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. The indispensable necessity of complete authority at the seat of government carries its own evidence with it. It is a power exercised by every legislature of the Union, I might say of the world, by virtue of its general supremacy. 
Without it, not only the public authority might be insulted and its proceedings interrupted with impunity, but a dependence of the members of the general government on the state comprehending the seat of the government, for protection in the exercise of their duty, might bring on the national councils an imputation of awe or influence, equally dishonorable to the government and dissatisfactory to the other members of the Confederacy. This consideration has the more weight as the gradual accumulation of public improvements at the stationary residence of the government would be both too great a public pledge to be left in the hands of a single state, and would create too many obstacles to a removal of the government, as still further to abridge its necessary independence. The extent of this federal district is sufficiently circumscribed to satisfy every jealousy of an opposite nature and as it is to be appropriated to this use with the consent of the state ceding it, as the state will no doubt provide in the compact for the rights and the consent of the citizens inhabiting it, as the inhabitants will find sufficient inducements of interest to become willing parties to the session, as they will have had their voice in the election of the government, which is to exercise authority over them, as a municipal legislature, for local purposes, derived from their own suffrages, will of course be allowed them, and as the authority of the legislature of the state, and of the inhabitants of the ceded part of it, to concur in the session, will be derived from the whole people of the state in their adoption of the Constitution, every imaginable objection seems to be obviated. The necessity of a like authority over forts, magazines, etc., established by the general government, is not less evident. The public money expended on such places, and the public property deposited in them, requires that they should be exempt from the authority of the particular state. Nor would it be proper for the places on which the security of the entire Union may depend, to be in any degree dependent on a particular member of it. All objections and scruples are here also obviated, by requiring the concurrence of the states concerned in every such establishment. 3. To declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture, except during the life of the person attained. As treason may be committed against the United States, the authority of the United States ought to be enabled to punish it, but as newfangled and artificial treasons have been the great engines by which violent factions, the natural offspring of free government, have usually wreaked their alternate malignity on each other, the Convention have, with great judgment, opposed a barrier to this peculiar danger, by inserting a constitutional definition of the crime, fixing the proof necessary for conviction of it, and restraining the Congress, even in punishing it, from extending the consequences of guilt beyond the person of its author. 4. To admit new states into the Union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states, or parts of states, without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned, as well as of the Congress. In the Articles of Confederation, no provision is found on this important subject. Canada was to be admitted of right, 
on her joining in the measures of the United States, and the other colonies, by which were evidently meant the other British colonies, at the discretion of nine states. The eventual establishment of new states seems to have been overlooked by the compilers of that instrument. We have seen the inconvenience of this omission, and the assumption of power into which Congress have been led by it. With great propriety, therefore, has the new system supplied the defect. The general precaution, that no new state shall be formed without the concurrence of the federal authority, and that of the states concerned, is consonant to the principles which ought to govern such transactions. The particular precaution against the erection of new states, by the partition of a state without its consent, quiets the jealousy of the larger states, as that of the smaller is quieted by a like precaution against a junction of states without their consent. 5. To dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States, with a proviso that nothing in the Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States or of any particular state. This is a power of very great importance, and required by considerations similar to those which show the propriety of the former. The proviso annexed is proper in itself, and was probably rendered absolutely necessary by jealousies and questions concerning the western territory sufficiently known to the public. 6. To guarantee to every state in the Union a republican form of government, to protect each of them against invasion, and on application of the legislature, or of the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened, against domestic violence. In a confederacy founded on republican principles, and composed of republican members, the superintending government ought clearly to possess authority to defend the system against aristocratic or monarchical innovations. The more intimate the nature of such a union may be, the greater interest have the members in the political institutions of each other, and the greater right to insist that the forms of government under which the compact was entered into should be substantially maintained. But a right implies a remedy, and where else could the remedy be deposited than where it is deposited by the Constitution? Governments of dissimilar principles and forms have been found less adapted to a federal coalition of any sort than those of a kindred nature. As the Confederate Republic of Germany, says Montesquieu, consists of free cities and petty states, subject to different princes, experience shows us that it is more imperfect than that of Holland and Switzerland. Greece was undone, he adds, as soon as the king of Macedon obtained a seat among the Amphictyons. In the latter case, no doubt, the disproportionate force, as well as the monarchical form of the new confederate, had its share of influence on the events. It may possibly be asked what need there could be of such a precaution, and whether it may not become a pretext for alterations in the state governments without the concurrence of the states themselves. These questions admit of ready answers. 
if the interposition of the general government should not be needed, the provision for such an event will be a harmless superfluity only in the Constitution. But who can say what experiments may be produced by the caprice of particular states, by the ambition of enterprising leaders, or by the intrigues and influence of foreign powers? To the second question it may be answered, that if the general government should interpose by virtue of this constitutional authority, it will be, of course, bound to pursue the authority. But the authority extends no further than to a guarantee of a republican form of government, which supposes a pre-existing government of the form which is to be guaranteed. As long, therefore, as the existing republican forms are continued by the states, they are guaranteed by the federal constitution. Whenever the states may choose to substitute other republican forms, they have a right to do so, and to claim the federal guarantee for the latter. The only restriction imposed on them is that they shall not exchange republican for anti-republican constitutions, a restriction which, it is presumed, will hardly be considered as a grievance. A protection against invasion is due from every society to the parts composing it. The latitude of the expression here used seems to secure each state not only against foreign hostility, but against ambitious or vindictive enterprises of its more powerful neighbors. The history, both of ancient and modern confederacies, proves that the weaker members of the Union ought not to be insensible to the policy of this article. Protection against domestic violence is added with equal propriety. It has been remarked that even among the Swiss cantons, which, properly speaking, are not under one government, provision is made for this object, and the history of that league informs us that mutual aid is frequently claimed and afforded, and as well by the most democratic as the other cantons. A recent and well-known event among ourselves has warned us to be prepared for emergencies of a like nature. At first view, it might seem not to square with the Republican theory, to suppose either that a majority have not the right, or that a minority will have the force to subvert a government, and consequently that the federal interposition can never be required but when it would be improper. But theoretic reasoning, in this, as in most other cases, must be qualified by the lessons of practice. Why may not illicit combinations, for purposes of violence, be formed as well by a majority of a state, especially a small state as by a majority of a county or a district of the same state, and if the authority of the state ought, in the latter case, to protect the local magistracy, ought not the federal authority, in the former, to support the state authority? Besides, there are certain parts of the state constitutions which are so interwoven with the federal constitution that a violent blow cannot be given to the one without communicating the wound to the other. Insurrections in a state will rarely induce a federal interposition, unless the number concerned in them bear some proportion to the friends of government. It will be much better that the violence in such cases should be repressed by the superintending power than that the majority should be left to maintain their cause by a bloody and obstinate contest. 
the existence of a right to interpose will generally prevent the necessity of exerting it. Is it true that force and right are necessarily on the same side in republican governments? May not the minor party possess such a superiority of pecuniary resources, of military talents and experience, or of secret succors from foreign powers, as will render it superior also in an appeal to the sword? May not a more compact and advantageous position turn the scale on the same side, against a superior number so situated as to be less capable of a prompt and collected exertion of its strength? Nothing can be more chimerical than to imagine that in a trial of actual force, victory may be calculated by the rules which prevail in a census of the inhabitants, or which determine the event of an election. May it not happen, in fine, that the minority of citizens may become a majority of persons by the accession of alien residents, of a casual concourse of adventurers, or of those whom the constitution of the state has not admitted to the rights of suffrage? I take no notice of an unhappy species of population abounding in some of the states, who, during the calm of regular government, are sunk below the level of men, but who, in the tempestuous scenes of civil violence, may emerge into the human character, and give a superiority of strength to any party with which they may associate themselves. In cases where it may be doubtful on which side justice lies, what better umpires could be desired by two violent factions flying to arms and tearing a state to pieces, than the representatives of confederate states not heeded by the local flame. To the impartiality of judges they would unite the affection of friends. Happy would it be if such a remedy for its infirmities could be enjoyed by all free governments, if a project equally effectual could be established for the universal peace of mankind. Should it be asked, what is to be the redress for an insurrection pervading all the states, and comprising a superiority of the entire force, though not a constitutional right? The answer must be, in such a case, as it would be without the compass of human remedies, so it is fortunately not within the compass of human probability, and that it is a sufficient recommendation of the federal constitution that it diminishes the risk of a calamity for which no possible constitution can provide a cure. Among the advantages of a confederate republic enumerated by Montesquieu, an important one is, that should a popular insurrection happen in one of the states, the others are able to quell it. Should abuses creep into one part, they are reformed by those that remain sound." 7. To consider all debts contracted and engagements entered into, before the adoption of this Constitution, as being no less valid against the United States under this Constitution than under the Confederation. This can only be considered as a declaratory proposition, and may have been inserted, among other reasons, for the satisfaction of the foreign creditors of the United States who cannot be strangers to the pretended doctrine that a change in the political form of civil society 
as the magical effect of dissolving its moral obligations. Among the lesser criticisms which have been exercised on the Constitution, it has been remarked that the validity of engagements ought to have been inserted in favor of the United States, as well as against them, and in this spirit which usually characterizes little critics, the omission has been transformed and magnified into a plot against the national rights. The authors of this discovery may be told, what few others need to be informed of, that as engagements are in their nature reciprocal, an assertion of their validity on one side necessarily involves a validity on the other side, and that as the article is merely declaratory, the establishment of the principle in one case is sufficient for every case. They may be further told that every constitution must limit its precautions to dangers that are not altogether imaginary, and that no real danger can exist that the government would dare with, or even without, this constitutional declaration before it, to remit the debts justly due to the public on the pretext here condemned. 8. To provide for amendments to be ratified by three-fourths of the states under two exceptions only. That useful alterations will be suggested by experience could not but be foreseen. It was requisite, therefore, that a mode for introducing them should be provided. The mode preferred by the Convention seems to be stamped with every mark of propriety. It guards equally against that extreme facility which would render the Constitution too mutable, and that extreme difficulty which might perpetuate its discovered faults. It, moreover, equally enables the general and the state governments to originate the amendments of errors, and as they may be pointed out by the experience on one side or on the other. The exception in favor of the equality of suffrage in the Senate was probably meant as a palladium to the residuary sovereignty of the states, implied and secured by that principle of representation in one branch of the legislature, and was probably insisted on by the states particularly attached to that equality. The other exception must have been admitted on the same considerations which produced the privilege defended by it. 9. The ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this constitution between the states, ratifying the same. This article speaks for itself. The express authority of the people alone could give due validity to the Constitution. To have required the unanimous ratification of the thirteen states would have subjected the essential interests of the whole to the caprice or corruption of a single member. It would have marked a want of foresight in the Convention, which our own experience would have rendered inexcusable. Two questions of a very delicate nature present themselves on this occasion. 1. On what principle the Confederation, which stands in the solemn form of a compact among the States, can be superseded without the unanimous consent of the parties to it? 2. What relation is to subsist between the nine or more States ratifying the Constitution and the remaining few who do not become parties to it? The first question is answered at once, by recurring to the absolute necessity of the case. 
to the great principle of self-preservation, to the transcendent law of nature and of nature's God, which declares that the safety and happiness of society are the objects at which all political institutions aim, and to which all such institutions must be sacrificed. Perhaps, also, an answer may be found without searching beyond the principles of the compact itself. It has been heretofore noted among the defects of the Confederation, that in many of the states it had received no higher sanction than a mere legislative ratification. The principle of reciprocality seems to require that its obligation on the other states should be reduced to the same standard. A compact between independent sovereigns, founded on ordinary acts of legislative authority, can pretend to no higher validity than a league or treaty between the parties. It is an established doctrine on the subject of treaties that all the articles are mutually conditions of each other, that a breach of any one article is a breach of the whole treaty, and that a breach, committed by either of the parties, absolves the others, and authorizes them, if they please, to pronounce the compact violated and void. Should it unhappily be necessary to appeal to these delicate truths, for a justification for dispensing with the consent of particular states to a dissolution of the federal pact, will not the complaining parties find it a difficult task to answer the multiplied and important infractions with which they may be confronted? The time has been when it was incumbent on us all to veil the ideas which this paragraph exhibits. The scene is now changed and with it the part which the same motives dictate. The second question is not less delicate, and the flattering prospect of its being merely hypothetical forbids an over-curious discussion of it. It is one of those cases which must be left to provide for itself. In general, it may be observed, that although no political relation can subsist between the assenting and dissenting states, yet the moral relations will remain uncancelled. The claims of justice, both on one side and on the other, will be in force, and must be fulfilled. The rights of humanity must in all cases be duly and mutually respected, whilst considerations of a common interest, and above all, the remembrance of the endearing scenes which are past, and the anticipation of a speedy triumph over the obstacles to reunion, will, it is hoped, not urge in vain moderation on one side and prudence on the other. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 43《Federalist Number 44 of the Federalist Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 44. Restrictions on the Authority of the Several States. From the New York Packet. Friday, January 25th, 1788. Madison. To the people of the state of New York, 
A fifth class of provisions in favor of the federal authority consists of the following restrictions on the authority of the several states. 1. No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver a legal tender in payment of debts, pass any bill of attainder, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts, or grant any title of nobility. The prohibition against treaties, alliances, and confederations makes a part of the existing Articles of Union, and for reasons which need no explanation, is copied into the new Constitution. The prohibition of letters of mark is another part of the old system, but is somewhat extended in the new. According to the former, letters of mark could be granted by the states after a declaration of war. According to the latter, these licenses must be obtained, as well during war as previous to its declaration, from the government of the United States. This alteration is fully justified by the advantage of uniformity in all points which relate to foreign powers, and of immediate responsibility to the nation in all those for whose conduct the nation itself is to be responsible. The right of corning money, which is here taken from the states, was left in their hands by the Confederation as a concurrent right with that of Congress, under an exception in favor of the exclusive right of Congress to regulate the alloy and value. In this instance, also, the new provision is an improvement on the old. Whilst the alloy and value depended on the general authority, a right of coinage in the particular states could have no other effect than to multiply expensive mints and diversify the forms and weights of the circulating pieces. The latter inconveniency defeats one purpose for which the power was originally submitted to the federal head. And as far as the former might prevent an inconvenient remittance of gold and silver to the central mint for recoinage, the end can be as well attained by local mints established under the general authority. The extension of the prohibition to bills of credit must give pleasure to every citizen, in proportion to his love of justice and his knowledge of the true springs of public prosperity. The loss which America has sustained since the peace, from the pestilent effects of paper money on the necessary confidence between man and man, on the necessary confidence in the public councils, on the industry and morals of the people, and on the character of republican government, constitutes an enormous debt against the state's chargeable with this unadvised measure, which must long remain unsatisfied, or rather an accumulation of guilt, which can be expiated no otherwise than by a voluntary sacrifice on the altar of justice of the power which has been the instrument of it. In addition to these persuasive considerations, it may be observed that the same reasons which show the necessity of denying to the states the power of regulating coin, prove with equal force that they ought not to be at liberty to substitute a paper medium in the place of coin. Had every state a right to regulate the value of its coin, there might be as many different currencies as states, and thus the intercourse among them would be impeded. Retrospective alterations in its value might be made, and thus the citizens of other states be injured, 
and animosities be kindled among the states themselves. The subjects of foreign powers might suffer from the same cause, and hence the Union be discredited and embroiled by the indiscretion of a single member. No one of these mischiefs is less incident to a power in the states to emit paper money than to coin gold or silver. The power to make anything but gold and silver a tender in payment of debts is withdrawn from the states, on the same principle with that of issuing a paper currency. Bills of attainder, ex post facto laws, and laws impairing the obligation of contracts, are contrary to the first principles of the social compact, and to every principle of sound legislation. The two former are expressly prohibited by the declarations prefixed to some of the state constitutions, and all of them are prohibited by the spirit and scope of these fundamental charters. Our own experience has taught us, nevertheless, that additional fences against these dangers ought not to be omitted. Very properly, therefore, have the Convention added this constitutional bulwark in favor of personal security and private rights, and I am much deceived if they have not, in so doing, as faithfully consulted the genuine sentiments as the undoubted interests of their constituents. The sober people of America are weary of the fluctuating policy which has directed the public councils. They have seen with regret and indignation that sudden changes and legislative interferences, in cases affecting personal rights, become jobs in the hands of enterprising and influential speculators, and snares to the more industrious and less informed part of the community. They have seen, too, that one legislative interference is but the first link of a long chain of repetitions, every subsequent interference being naturally produced by the effects of the preceding. They very rightly infer, therefore, that some thorough reform is wanting, which will banish speculations on public measures, inspire a general prudence and industry, and give a regular course to the business of society. The prohibition with respect to titles of nobility is copied from the Articles of Confederation, and needs no comment. 2. No state shall, without the consent of the Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws, and the net produce of all duties and imposts laid by any state on imports or exports shall be for the use of the Treasury of the United States, and all such laws shall be subject to the revision and control of the Congress. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty on tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power, or engage in war unless actually invaded, or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. The restraint on the power of the states over imports and exports is enforced by all the arguments which prove the necessity of submitting the regulation of trade to the federal councils. It is needless, therefore, to remark further on this head, than that the matter in which the restraint is qualified seems well calculated at once to secure to the states a reasonable discretion 
in providing for the conveniency of their imports and exports, and to the United States a reasonable check against the abuse of this discretion. The remaining particulars of this clause fall within reasonings which are either so obvious, or have been so fully developed, that they may be passed over without remark. The sixth and last class consists of the several powers and provisions by which efficacy is given to all the rest. 1. Of these the first is, the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the Government of the United States, or in any department or officer thereof. Few parts of the Constitution have been assailed with more intemperance than this, yet on a fair investigation of it, no part can appear more completely invulnerable. Without the substance of this power, the whole Constitution would be a dead letter. Those who object to the article, therefore, as a part of the Constitution, can only mean that the form of the provision is improper. But have they considered whether a better form could have been substituted? There are four other possible methods which the Constitution might have taken on this subject. They might have copied the second article of the existing Confederation, which would have prohibited the exercise of any power not expressly delegated. They might have attempted a positive enumeration of the powers comprehended under the general terms necessary and proper. They might have attempted a negative enumeration of them by specifying the powers accepted from the general definition. They might have been altogether silent on the subject, leaving these necessary and proper powers to construction and inference. Had the Convention taken the first method of adopting the second article of Confederation, it is evident that the new Congress would be continually exposed, as their predecessors have been, to the alternative of construing the term expressly with so much rigor as to disarm the government of all real authority whatever, or with so much latitude as to destroy altogether the force of the restriction. It would be easy to show, if it were necessary, that no important power, delegated by the Articles of Confederation, has been or can be executed by Congress without recurring more or less to the doctrine of construction or implication. As the powers delegated under the new system are more extensive, the government which is to administer it would find itself still more distressed with the alternative of betraying the public interest by doing nothing, or of violating the Constitution by exercising powers indispensably necessary and proper, but at the same time not expressly granted. Had the Convention attempted a positive enumeration of the powers necessary and proper for carrying their other powers into effect, the attempt would have involved a complete digest of laws on every subject to which the Constitution relates. Accommodated, too, not only to the existing state of things, but to all the possible changes which futurity may produce, for in every new application of a general power, the particular powers, which are the means of attaining the object of the general power, must always necessarily vary with that object, 
and be often properly varied whilst the object remains the same. Had they attempted to enumerate the particular powers or means not necessary or proper for carrying the general powers into execution, the task would have been no less chimerical, and would have been liable to this further objection, that every defect in the enumeration would have been equivalent to a positive grant of authority. If, to avoid this consequence, they had attempted a partial enumeration of the exceptions, and described the residue by the general terms, not necessary or proper, it must have happened that the enumeration could comprehend a few of the accepted powers only, that these would be such as would be least likely to be assumed or tolerated, because the enumeration would, of course, select such as would be least necessary or proper, and that the unnecessary and improper powers included in the residuum would be less forcibly accepted than if no partial enumeration had been made. Had the Constitution been silent on this head, there can be no doubt that all the particular powers requisite as means of executing the general powers would have resulted to the government by unavoidable implication. No axiom is more clearly established in law or in reason than that wherever the end is required, the means are authorized. Wherever a general power to do a thing is given, every particular power necessary for doing it is included. Had this last method, therefore, been pursued by the Convention, every objection now urged against their plan would remain in all its plausibility, and the real inconveniency would be incurred of not removing a pretext which may be seized on critical occasions for drawing into question the essential powers of the Union. If it be asked what is to be the consequence, in case the Congress shall misconstrue this part of the Constitution, and exercise powers not warranted by its true meaning, I answer, the same as if they should misconstrue or enlarge any other power vested in them, as if the general power had been reduced to particulars, and any one of these were to be violated, the same, in short, as if the state legislature should violate the irrespective constitutional authorities. In the first instance, the success of the usurpation will depend on the executive and judiciary departments, which are to expound and give effect to the legislative acts, and in the last resort a remedy must be obtained from the people who can, by the election of more faithful representatives, annul the acts of the usurpers. The truth is, that this ultimate redress may be more confided in against unconstitutional acts of the federal than of the state legislatures, for this plain reason, that as every such act of the former will be an invasion of the rights of the latter, these will be ever ready to mark the innovation, to sound the alarm to the people, and to exert their local influence in effecting a change of federal representatives. There being no such intermediate body between the state legislatures and the people interested in watching the conduct of the former, violations of the state constitutions are more likely to remain unnoticed and unredressed. 2. 
this constitution and the laws of the united states which shall be made in pursuance thereof and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the united states shall be the supreme law of the land and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding the indiscreet zeal of the adversaries to the constitution has betrayed them into an attack on this part of it also without which it would have been evidently and radically defective to be fully sensible of this we need only suppose for a moment that the supremacy of the state constitutions had been left complete by a saving clause in their favour in the first place as these constitutions invest the state legislatures with absolute sovereignty in all cases not accepted by the existing articles of confederation all the authorities contained in the proposed constitution so far as they exceed those enumerated in the confederation would have been annulled and the new congress would have been reduced to the same impotent condition with their predecessors in the next place as the constitutions of some of the states do not even expressly and fully recognize the existing powers of the confederacy an express saving of the supremacy of the former would in such states have brought into question every power contained in the proposed constitution in the third place as the constitutions of the states differ much from each other it might happen that a treaty or national law of great and equal importance to the states would interfere with some and not with other constitutions and would consequently be valid in some of the states at the same time that it would have no effect in others in fine the world would have seen for the first time a system of government founded on an inversion of the fundamental principles of all government it would have seen the authority of the whole society everywhere subordinate to the authority of the parts it would have seen a monster in which the head was under the direction of the members three the senators and representatives and the members of the several state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers both of the united states and the several states shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this constitution it has been asked why it was thought necessary that the state magistracy should be bound to support the federal constitution and unnecessary that a like oath should be imposed on the officers of the united states in favor of the state constitutions several reasons might be assigned for the distinction i content myself with one which is obvious and conclusive the members of the federal government will have no agency in carrying the state constitutions into effect the members and officers of the state governments on the contrary will have an essential agency in giving effect to the federal constitution the election of the president and senate will depend in all cases on the legislatures of the several states and the election of the house of representatives will equally depend on the same authority in the first instance and will probably forever be conducted by the officers and according to the laws of the states 
4. Among the provisions for giving efficacy to the federal powers might be added those which belong to the executive and judiciary departments, but as these are reserved for particular examination in another place, I pass them over in this. We have now reviewed, in detail, all the articles composing the sum or quantity of power delegated by the proposed Constitution to the Federal Government, and are brought to this undeniable conclusion, that no part of the power is unnecessary or improper for accomplishing the necessary objects of the Union. The question, therefore, whether this amount of power shall be granted or not, resolves itself into another question whether or not a government commensurate to the exigencies of the Union shall be established, or, in other words, whether the Union itself shall be preserved. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 44。Number 45 of the Federalist Papers this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. Federalist Number 45. The Alleged Danger from the Powers of the Union to the State Governments. Considered for the Independent Journal, Saturday, January 26, 1788. Madison. To the people of the State of New York. Having shown that no one of the powers transferred to the federal government is unnecessary or improper, the next question to be considered is whether the whole mass of them will be dangerous to the portion of authority left in the several states. The adversaries to the plan of the convention, instead of considering in the first place what degree of power was absolutely necessary for the purposes of the federal government, have exhausted themselves in a secondary inquiry into the possible consequences of the proposed degree of power to the governments of the particular states. But if the Union, as has been shown, be essential to the security of the people of America against foreign danger, if it be essential to their security against contentions and wars among the different states, if it be essential to guard them against those violent and oppressive factions which embitter the blessings of liberty, and against those military establishments which must gradually poison its very fountain, if, in a word, the Union be essential to the happiness of the people of America, is it not preposterous, to urge as an objection to a government without which the objects of the union cannot be attained that such a government may derogate from the importance of the governments of the individual states was then the american revolution effected was the american confederacy formed was the precious blood of thousands spilt and the hard-earned substance of millions lavished not that the people of America should enjoy peace, liberty, and safety, but that the government of the individual states, that particular municipal establishments, might enjoy a certain extent of power and be arrayed with certain dignities and attributes of sovereignty. 
We have heard of the impious doctrine in the old world, that the people were made for kings, not kings for the people. Is the same doctrine to be revived in the new, in another shape that the solid happiness of the people is to be sacrificed to the views of political institutions of a different form? It is too early for politicians to presume on our forgetting that the public good, the real welfare of the great body of the people, is the supreme object to be pursued, and that no form of government whatever has any other value than as it may be fitted for the attainment of this object. Were the plan of the Convention adverse to the public happiness, my voice would be, reject the plan. Were the Union itself inconsistent with the public happiness, it would be, abolish the Union. In like manner, as far as the sovereignty of the states cannot be reconciled to the happiness of the people, the voice of every good citizen must be, let the former be sacrificed to the latter. How far the sacrifice is necessary has been shown. How far the unsacrificed residue will be endangered is the question before us. Several important considerations have been touched in the course of these papers, which discountenance the supposition that the operation of the federal government will by degrees prove fatal to the state governments. The more I revolve the subject, the more fully I am persuaded that the balance is much more likely to be disturbed by the preponderancy of the last than of the first scale. We have seen, in all the examples of ancient and modern confederacies, the strongest tendency continually betraying itself in the members, to despoil the general government of its authorities with a very ineffectual capacity in the latter to defend itself against the encroachments. Although, in most of these examples, the system has been so dissimilar from that under consideration as greatly to weaken any inference concerning the latter from the fate of the former, yet, as the states will retain, under the proposed Constitution, a very extensive portion of active sovereignty, the inference ought not to be wholly disregarded. In the Achaean League it is probable that the federal head had a degree and species of power, which gave it a considerable likeness to the government framed by the Convention. The Lycian Confederacy, as far as its principles and form are transmitted, must have borne a still greater analogy to it. Yet history does not inform us that either of them ever degenerated, or tended to degenerate, into one consolidated government. On the contrary, we know that the ruin of one of them proceeded from the incapacity of the federal authority to prevent the dissensions, and finally the disunion of the subordinate authorities. These cases are the more worthy of our attention, as the external causes by which the component parts were pressed together were much more numerous and powerful than in our case, and consequently less powerful ligaments within would be sufficient to bind the members to the head and to each other. In the feudal system we have seen a similar propensity exemplified. Notwithstanding the want of proper sympathy in every instance between the local sovereigns and the people, and the sympathy in some instances between the general sovereign and the latter, 
it usually happened that the local sovereigns prevailed in the rivalship for encroachments had no external dangers enforced internal harmony and subordination and particularly had the local sovereigns possessed the affections of the people the great kingdoms in europe would at this time consist of as many independent princes as there were formerly feudatory barons the state governments will have the advantage of the federal government whether we compare them in respect to the immediate dependence of the one on the other to the weight of personal influence which each side will possess to the powers respectively vested in them to the predilection and probable support of the people to the disposition and faculty of resisting and frustrating the measures of each other the state governments may be regarded as constituent and essential parts of the federal government whilst the latter is nowise essential to the operation or organization of the former without the intervention of the state legislatures the president of the united states cannot be elected at all they must in all cases have a great share in his appointment and will perhaps in most cases of themselves determine it the senate will be elected absolutely and exclusively by the state legislatures even the house of representatives though drawn immediately from the people will be chosen very much under the influence of that class of men whose influence over the people obtains for themselves an election into the state legislatures thus each of the principal branches of the federal government will owe its existence more or less to the favor of the state governments and must consequently feel a dependence which is much more likely to beget a disposition too obsequious than too overbearing towards them on the other side the component parts of the state governments will in no instance be indebted for their appointment to the direct agency of the federal government and very little if at all to the local influence of its members the number of individuals employed under the constitution of the united states will be much smaller than the number employed under the particular states there will consequently be less of personal influence on the side of the former than of the latter the members of the legislative executive and judiciary departments of thirteen and more states the justices of peace officers of militia ministerial officers of justice with all the county corporation and town officers for three millions and more of people intermixed and having particular acquaintance with every class and circle of people must exceed beyond all proportion both in number and influence those of every description who would be employed in the administration of the federal system compare the members of the three great departments of the thirteen states excluding from the judiciary department the justices of peace with the members of the corresponding departments of the single government of the union compare the militia officers of three millions of people with the military and marine officers of any establishment which is within the compass of probability or i may add of possibility and in this view alone we may pronounce the advantage of the states to be decisive if the federal government is to have collectors of revenue 
the state governments will have theirs also. And as those of the former will be principally on the sea-coast, and not very numerous, whilst those of the latter will be spread over the face of the country, and will be very numerous, the advantage in this view also lies on the same side. It is true that the Confederacy is to possess, and may exercise, the power of collecting internal as well as external taxes throughout the states. But it is probable that this power will not be resorted to, except for supplemental purposes of revenue, that an option will then be given to the states to supply their quotas by previous collections of their own, and that the eventual collection— under the immediate authority of the Union, will generally be made by the officers, and according to the rules, appointed by the several states. Indeed, it is extremely probable that in other instances, particularly in the organization of the judicial power, the officers of the states will be clothed with the correspondent authority of the Union. Should it happen, however, that separate collectors of internal revenue should be appointed under the federal government, the influence of the whole number would not bear a comparison with that of the multitude of state officers in the opposite scale. Within every district to which the federal collector would be allotted, there would not be less than thirty or forty, or even more, officers of different descriptions, and many of them persons of character and weight, whose influence would lie on the side of the state. The powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised principally on external objects, as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce, with which last the power of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. The operations of the federal government will be most extensive and important in times of war and danger, those of the state governments in times of peace and security as the former periods will probably bear a small proportion to the latter, the state governments will here enjoy another advantage over the federal government. The more adequate, indeed, the federal powers may be rendered to the national defense, the less frequent will be those scenes of danger which might favor their ascendancy over the governments of the particular states." If the new Constitution be examined with accuracy and candor, it will be found that the change which it proposes consists much less in the addition of new powers to the Union than in the invigoration of its original powers. The regulation of commerce, it is true, is a new power, but that seems to be an addition which few oppose, and from which no apprehensions are entertained. The powers relating to war and peace, armies and fleets, treaties and finance, with the other more considerable powers, are all vested in the existing Congress by the Articles of Confederation. The proposed change does not enlarge these powers. 
it only substitutes a more effectual mode of administering them. The change relating to taxation may be regarded as the most important, and yet the present Congress have as complete authority to require of the States indefinite supplies of money for the common defense and general welfare, as the future Congress will have to require them of individual citizens, and the latter will be no more bound than the States themselves have been to pay the quotas respectively taxed on them. Had the States complied punctually with the Articles of Confederation, or could their compliance have been enforced by as peaceable means as may be used with success towards single persons, our past experience is very far from countenancing an opinion that the state governments would have lost their constitutional powers and have gradually undergone an entire consolidation. To maintain that such an event would have ensued would to be say at once that the existence of the state governments is incompatible with any system whatever that accomplishes the essential purposes of the Union. Signed, Publius. End of Federalist Number 45